Part five. Here we are. David Macmillan. Hello. Got a loyal following now. You guys out there been loving his videos. One of the most common questions I'm getting on YouTube is, when is David coming back on? Every day. When is David coming back on? When is David coming back on? Well, I still have a pulse, Sean, so <laughs> as long as I've got that. But I should uh, let everybody know that I'm not really up to par this morning. Too much nine-to-five work. It's, uh, I mean, <laughs> I got that message when I was 18. You'd think I would have realized that it doesn't suit me. But nonetheless, uh, we'll stagger through the various places we've got to go today. How's the job going? Um, oh, Nightmarish, but the CCTV is kind of interesting. I've got a, um, I had a job last week where um, uh, a Colombian fam, actually, family, really. Cartel. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I must have found <laughs> the only Colombians in London that don't have connections. <laughs> so um, they say. So they so say. They all say. <laughs> they seem to own some properties. But they're worried about 80-year-old dad being abused by a carer. So uh, I had to put 19 cameras in this place. It's too many. Nobody, I mean, nobody watches all of that. Oh, the camera would have disappeared in the old days, but now cameras, that, I guess that's the soft approach. <laughs> I suppose so. Um, I think, um, um, I don't know, uh, he's got a little touch of Alzheimer's. And uh, so I, I had to build them in so that he couldn't play with them or detect where they were. Mm. Where would you disguise a camera? Well, reading books about the DEA and the CIA, the methods that they have used, um, light bulbs, air conditioning vents. Very much so. The standard ones are clocks. Um, clocks. Uh, pictures on a wall. Pictures. Um, Dorian Gray. Smoke alarms, that's used a, a fair bit. Um, I kind of like... Uh, two-way mirrors myself. Oh, so yeah, I was way. heavily into that with the LSD experiments mm. in San Francisco, I think it was. Um, but I suppose it's a comfort. You think around the world how many images are out there that nobody ever watches. Of course, uh, AI, artificial intelligence, will soon enough um, make all that uh, very easy to follow what people are doing. It'll make mistakes. Some innocent people will sadly suffer. But in the general good, you have to lose a few innocent people. Well, Sheriff Joe Arpaio had uh, got in trouble because he had cameras in his jail and perverts were looking at the women going on the toilet in the jail. That's a kind of japanese thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's very Japanese. Uh, <laughs> very big upskirters. Um, and I think there's a bar in Tokyo where it's got a glass uh, tabletop. And the girls run around underneath it, um, and the guys drink sake and go stupid. But, um, I can't see really the point in all of that. It, it you were never foolish. an upskirter, David. No, not really. Not really. Um, but speaking of AI, it, it, I uh, was very impressed with uh, David Icke, isn't it? David Icke, been the biggest thing on the channel in my recent months. Yeah. Yes. Shout out to David, thank you. Yes, uh, and I suppose I should throw in my two cents about all of that. Uh, though I love a conspiracy, I started out, even at 14, um, fully wound into it. Um, you know, they say you've got this either a personal God or a, a God for everybody. In the same way, conspiracies 
are a personal conspiracy against you, we're watching, or <laughs> one behind big events. And, you know, if there's a big event, something has to be behind it, like the Kennedy assassination. Seems very unlikely. But uh, do you really think anything stays a secret for too long? Well, I was just researching about the death of Kiki Camarina, who was the DEA agent that was featured in the later season of Narcos, Narcos Mexico. Ah, yeah, the name rings a bell. Yeah, yeah, and there were a few state police present at the kidnapping and torture who went into witness protection in America. It was a grisly death too, oh, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, really grisly. And, really and grisly. the US uh, was very determined to get somebody for The that. DEA was. Yeah, right. But these state police who were present at the kidnapping and the murder, um, they went into witness protection under the DEA in America. Yeah. They told the DEA, everybody who was in that house, the cabinet secretary, the war secretary for Mexico, um, the CIA representative um, that was linked to Bush and all this stuff. And when the, the head of the DEA who was assigned to investigate the death filed all that in his reports, mm. the response that came back was stick to your work. All right. You, you Leave work, it alone. Your work is the death of Kiki Camarera, mm. not an investigation of a sister agency. Um, there's of national course. security interest. Don't ever file any of this in these reports again because they could become out. They could come out in the court system. Mm. Put everything in secret, internal DEA memos that will never be revealed. So, and they, because of course in the US, because of the court system, things come out that way. Yeah. Have you noticed interesting thing in the UK? Um, very rarely do uh, live uh, telephone intercepts. Uh, recordings are used in UK trials. Uh, they don't, they might use um, a, a bug planted in a car. Those, the old Hatton Garden codgers got recorded in a car. I mean, how silly was that? You'd think they were old enough to know not to. Uh, I mean, a, a couple of um, people I know, they, they won't talk anywhere. And one, an Irish guy who always talks with his hand over his mouth, he's worried about lip breathers. Uh, <clears throat> But anyway, um, so I was very tuned into the to look for conspiracies early on. I read um, John Fowles' The Magus. It's a, a fictional book. And in that, uh, the lead character gets manipulated completely in this entire, uh, the latter part of his life by events that are staged for him. Um, and that was very well done. But on, And on the comic side of it, in a way... Have you read any of the uh, Illuminatus trilogy? Um, uh, what's his name? Something, uh, somebody, Anton, somebody. Uh, oh, yes, Anton Wilson. He, no. he wrote them. They're terrific. I mean, it's ludicrous. There are seven John Dillingers, you know, apparently. That, uh, <laughs> it, it was, um, what is it, uh, Septuplets or something. And they grew up. The, the, the lead character in it is a guy called Hagbard Selene, <laughs> who has a submarine smuggling uh, A-class narcotics around the world. <laughs> uh, the Masons come into it. The Mormons come into it. There's uh, even another group that comes from 1930s Harlem. Um, the, the series is great. It goes back to the 70s. But 
for those who are sort of feel leaning towards conspiracies, a kind of light touch uh, approach of these novels is a good place to start so you can separate the likelihood from the unlikelihood. Now, a lot of things that happened in my life, I uh, could reasonably assume that I was either very unlucky or um, there was something uh, more to it. There's something more to it with the obvious thing. I annoyed authorities. Uh, I did that uh, long stretch in Australia. I had business in Thailand. Uh, they got tangled up in the death of a DEA agent's wife. That's no way to make friends, but nothing to do with me. So when I would always be very uh, alert to finding patterns and, and links between things. I met um, sometimes people just by chance two or three times over a period of 20 or 30 years. Uh, there was a US congressman uh, that I kept meeting in transit lounges and we'd chat and he kind of spoke to me as though he knew me you know, referring to things on our side, you know, the Western world, and spoke about uh, the Mujahideen, which were um, one of the many Afghani groups that were uh, funded by the CIA. But because he kept reoccurring, um, I started to think, is there something more going on? But that's just straight paranoia. Where it was of some interest is by observing very carefully. I think I mentioned before, when I was trying to leave uh, a city once, I, uh, and another little operation down in Green Park, I spent a whole morning with five people, checking out almost everybody there, doing traces on number plates, finding out what somebody was doing. And people do strange things. One guy we followed was going into tall buildings, going to different floors, and doing nothing, retracing his steps. He was a fantasizer. He was imagining uh, some old retired guy, some empire that he never had, uh, people on trains uh, being peculiar. But if you do observe things carefully, I can tell, uh, some things do come to mind. And for those who like uh, a bit of a mystery, I think we can share one. That Now, where do you think when... The crap hits the fan that all the politicians in Westminster will run and hide. Where will they go if, like, there's a nuclear war? Is that what you're saying? Uh, nuclear war, massive terrorist attack. The conspiracy theory on the internet is that they have um, these underground bunkers in New Zealand. Mm. Well, they don't. That would take some time to get to, involve a bit of air travel, unless <laughs> they were had a kayak. And so, if, if, it's, if it's a media. Mm. I have a friend actually, and she does. She did used to work for a company that did build underground bunkers in London, mm. um, and they cost fifty million upwards for these bunkers. Wow. Yeah, so I imagine that that would be one option. Well, for those interested, they can see the one in London or see where it comes out and goes in. Folks, go to. Westminster tube station. It's a, a new build, relatively, and a big renovation's been done. And if you take the escalators up, you'll realize that you're going 
quite deep, but you've passed through a floor that doesn't seem to exist. Now, it's got a lot of metal paneling everywhere. And you go up onto a kind of a landing and there's some more stairs. But if you keep to the, the stairways, in the middle, you'll see uh, a range of panels that have no reason to be there. And we should, I'll give a signed copy to anybody who can identify where that entrance and exit is. Put your answer in the comments section below this video, please, if you'd mm. like a signed copy. Would that be a signed copy of Escape or Destiny? Uh, Destiny at the moment. Um, I think, um, um, but I, I should uh, say too, by the time people uh, see this one, the audio versions of both of those books should be available. Fantastic, and links to all of David's books on all of his socials and YouTube channel are in the description box below this video. Yes. So, um, clear observation is uh, the best way of uh, finding out what's really going on. But of course, we're in a big trans transition phase, aren't we? Um, what was that Cambridge Analytica, wasn't it, that uh, uh, got in trouble for um, using information from Facebook. Just watched a documentary on them at the weekend on Netflix about right. the great hacking or something. Oh, the great hack, yes. The great hack. Yeah. So they, if you downloaded the app on Facebook, mm. they not only got all of your personal data, but they got all the personal data from all of your friends on Facebook as well. That's a nice little click, isn't it? Isn't that a good trick? Well, um, so many apps you download and you see this long list of things they seem to want. Yeah, access to your camera, your photos, your files. And you think, oh, to hell with it. Why not? Yeah. Huh? No, nobody can be bothered um, customizing that little bit yeah. or going into it. And they make it difficult. But I think um, more intrusive, yet less obvious, is to come. You think of what you can find out about a person from the way they click through things, their hand gestures the way they type, their, their finger movements. You could break down their psychology to such an extent that you could determine what their likely decision is when um, faced with a series of images or events. From body language. Yes, entirely like that. There was a, a famous um, test where uh, cameras were set up in a, um, it was a kind of networking meeting. A lot of people were invited and they had name tags. Now, without taking the sound into account or any words the people spoke, they were able to predict which people would be the, um, the leaders within that group, which people would make contact and which people would stay together afterwards. And that prediction was done entirely by their movements. And I suppose that's because the part of our brains that does the talking is kind of like the bullshit department, really. Uh, whereas um, we don't disguise our movement so much, except in a kind of limited way. So when all of that kind of tactile and haptic uh, data uh, is brought in, there'll be no secrets. It's like how the gang members size people up when they're walking into the prison. The guy with a spring in his step, chest out, chin up. You know, he's probably one of us. The guy shuffling, looking down, got something to hide, maybe a chomo, maybe a snitch, maybe we can exploit this guy somehow. Uh, true, and then you've got the next layer of uh, distinguishing the, the pretenders. Uh, 
The pretenders. Uh, and the ones with false bravado. Yes. Um, and um, because, of course, they always say, don't they, you know, beware of the quiet man. You know, while others are talking, he's listening. Uh, when others are acting, he's preparing. You know, and he'll strike when you don't know. <laughs> well, I once got moved over to Max Security from Medium after a year of being in Medium. Why? What did you do? My uh, uh, prosecutor doubled my bail to 1.5 million. So when your bail goes over a million, you move to Max. Uh, so I, you know, I was doing the prison walk, walking in there up to this table of murderers, all the slang, all the prison slang. And, mm. um, you know, they're just looking at me. They let me just stand on the end of the table. And they're deciding whether they're going to accept me or they're going to brutalize me. So I'm quite nervous, but I'm putting on this prison bravado like you described. Yeah. Go back to my cell. The head of the gang, Bullet, who was a murderer, walks into my cell with all of his legal paperwork, gives it to me and says, I want you to read this for me. Oh, that's right. I read that in so your book. So they've seen right yeah. through my act. Yeah. I was yeah. a resource to them, I had, I, I, an educated person. Exactly. That's yeah. how good they are at reading body language. I suppose they have so much practice. Yeah, uh, that um, it becomes kind of a, a second nature. And yeah. also, um, you know yourself, that somebody who has even the, the skills to put together an internal prison application for something or uh, can read their way through court papers, yeah, or, or even for that matter, write the guy some kind of bogus love letter to his girlfriend. You know? Uh, many ways of uh, being helpful there. <laughs> also, um, if you come from somewhere else, that's always a plus because you, they will feel, have contacts in a whole new area that might be good stuff. Um, well, it's baffling yeah. for them as well because they don't mm. know how to pigeonhole you. Yeah. I think, too, um, you can protect yourself by giving the impression that you're uh, your security is done by some kind of foreign devils that they don't understand. Whereas a, a London villain will size up another London villain and think, <laughs> yes, I can get on top of that one. Uh, if they're people that barely speak any English and when they're carrying out a contract, they arrive with a Polaroid and just keep killing everybody who looks, well, close enough, you know. <laughs> Uh, a good match. Uh, the unknown is, is is very fearful too. Yes. So where were we uh, last? I was here. We finished four episodes with you. I think all your episodes now combined clips must be approaching a million views. We ha escaped from death row in Thailand. Yeah. You've gone to the country of. What was the country you went to? Uh, I went Asian to Singapore. World. Singapore, first, yes. And you are establishing in Singapore some uh, of your old resources to make a move from Singapore to your next destination. Well, that's right, because the the passport that I had to get out of Thailand was a stolen one, and it could be worked out what that name was by simply going through the passenger lists of that day, matching them against reported missing or lost passports. And then, you know, watching for the pattern there. And they'd get a few others who were doing, you know, their own uh, kind of dodginess with uh, phony passports that day. But they, they could kind of work it out. So I really only had about a week. And I, I found a kind of crumpled travel agent and uh, where they used to write hand 
written tickets, jumbled up the name a bit, and whereas today they have to be very exact. If there's a mismatch on your travel documents at all, they won't let you on. But back then they were, uh, even though this ticket was written in, in a middle name. So I flew uh, where nobody could touch me, I felt. Uh, and that was in, back into Pakistan. Now, I was no stranger to that place entirely. I'd been there back in the late 70s, um, and you know, I was in my 20s doing some hash business there. And, um, and it was very different back then. It was run by General Zia al-Haq, who was uh, obviously a military man and firm, a dictator, surely. Um, and the whole town was quiet. Arriving in Karachi, I think there were two halfway okay hotels. The Intercontinental was one. It was very hard to get anything to eat. But I wasn't staying in Karachi. I was going to Baluchistan. Now, Karachi is part of Sindh province, and they have their own independence movement. And Baluchistan, which is over towards uh, Iran, um, again, they, they have their own language, and they have an independence movement. And my friend there was Mir, which means Lord, Nurjahan Magsi of the Magsi clan. And I'd met him, um, I suppose, back in 79, um, at a checkpoint where we all ended up wanting to decide what to do about it. And uh, so I learned a lot from this guy. He, he handled them well. He had some military people um, uh, that were kind of on his little team. And he was, as you expect, being a lord. He didn't have huge uh, holdings, quite modest in a way, his little castle uh, along the coast. But um, I was there more or less on uh, a bit of smuggling, uh, a bit of feeling my way. You know, I managed to offend a few villagers along the way. So you arrive at a checkpoint mm. and you said he handled them well. What do you mean by that? Well, um, and can you, how did you get to this checkpoint in the first place? Um, what were you doing? I there? was driving with my guide who was uh, Lee, my old Thailand contact, who had some, uh, on part of his family, had some uh, Pakistani origins. So we were headed off to um, a village where he had friends. Uh, we stopped at a few little ones. I um, bear in mind this is seventy, so anything kind of goes. I, the, the, the women are running around with uh, burkas and you know, the, the grills over their face, and uh, the, the village headman understood a bit of English. And I thought I'd say something clever and said, "Well, oh, doesn't look good, but at least you can marry off the ugly ones, huh?" <laughs> Oh, and dear. everything visibly oh, tightened. Uh, my guides sort of clenched weapons under their under their shirts, and um, Lee said, "David, we have got to get out of here now." So we did, and uh, apparently they smashed the cup that I drank out of, uh, burnt the chair that I sat in, and the women were seen sweeping away with bunches of sticks. My foot impressions in the dust. You never existed. That's a, a negative, isn't it? So <laughs> I, I didn't win that village over, but we found one in the end. 
But at the crossing, these crossings are, they're on the so-called main road, but it's still a dirt track. And you either pay a little bit of something and they annoy you, uh, the checkpoint guards there. But there was five of us there and I was getting ready to pay something, but I could see that, that um, there were too many for the right day. Something else was going on. There was a senior officer there and uh, two halfwits with very aging, rusty guns. But they were just seeing through a bit of smuggling that goes through in Balochistan. And so I think they had that look like they wanted to play with me a bit and see what could be rinsed out. And my guides were pretty nervous. But um, How did you get guides? Uh, Lee, my... Um, Thai contact from there. He had family members who, who were living in that part, so they knew their way around. But they, they were not Baluchis. Um, and luckily, um, at uh, about the time it wasn't working out well, uh, a white Mercedes drew up, and in a cloud of billowing silk cloth, Norjon emerged and uh, with his gold watches and chains and uh, started talking to um, you know, four different people in different languages all at once and kind of looked at me. And uh, it must have taken a shine to me. He, he sort of just took me with him. And the spooky kind of uh, army people uh, all kind of suddenly relaxed. He had his own uh, bit of business there, which was um, he had a couple of distilleries going. Um, so, uh, but uh, though we left a few bottles, uh, it, we didn't stay around to have any drinks. But we stayed with him for a while, and I was uh, going into Afghanistan at the time, uh, where the, the village I wanted was. Um, made some arrangement for about uh, eight or 900 kilos of hash, uh, and then went on looking at what I thought were old Persian forts, but Norjon knew that they were not there. We'd actually come across one of Alexander the Great's uh, ruined cities uh, there, not far from Kandahar. Um, So we stayed friends, of course. Now, the advantage of uh, going to stay with him was that uh, anybody asking about me would become part of the desert soil. Um, and, and, and it's very unlikely anybody would. And if there was any background to it, I'd come to know about it. I was in, uh, invited into the, uh, the family house. They uh, um, brought me little trays of breakfast in the morning. I fixed up their satellite dishes um, for them, um, which they tuned into you know, a real mixture of crap that comes over the airwaves. But we, we began friends there and stayed friends for many, many years. During my 10-year <clears throat> break from there, when I had the trouble in Australia, uh, Norjon had his own trouble, and he was um, arrested in the great September 30 massacre. What his, was that? His group um, went up against some... Um, of the uh, one of the Karachi, um, we'll call them political groups. They have political aspirations, but really they're just crooks, just a, a gang of villains. 
and um, over 80 people were killed that day. Uh, of course, somebody had to be, you know, it's a bit like rounding up the usual suspects in Casablanca and people get arrested. And he was uh, ultimately bailed on that, unbelievably. But um, that's something to remember if uh, people, if you find yourself stuck in uh, Pakistan, uh, and India, for that matter, it applies. The Supreme Court there has ruled that if a case is not completed in two years, uh, bail must be given. So that's what you see people doing, just waiting out their two years. They get bail and then delay the case forever. So um, he got out. Um, but I then had to really think, where was I? How much damage had been done, and where to next? Um, after all, I'm 42 by this stage. I've had all the trouble in Australia. Um, uh, my wife was killed in the prison fire. Uh, I'd been released from that to be uh, pursued again. Ended up in Thailand. Uh, things weren't going well there. Managed to escape from it, but. Uh, and of course, in the beginning, there was a lot of goodwill. People, you know, were, were quite happy that I'd escaped from there and, and were sending money. But I knew that wouldn't last uh, forever. Um, and it had kind of worn me out, really. Um, uh, it somehow seemed much more relaxing to be in the middle of nowhere uh, at that time. But I couldn't stay there forever um, and thought, uh, I best go back to Europe to see what's left of little things I'd stashed around, some accounts, a couple of uh, bank deposit boxes, and um, prepared for that journey. Of course, the kind, the quality of the passports you can get in that part of the world is varied and mixed. Everything from um, those old, remember the old British passport with the black cover? Yes. It was like a, a, a taller little booklet than most and handwritten on the inside. <laughs> uh, the Foreign Office used to call it the Foreigner Frightener because it had those words inside saying, Her Britannic Majesty commands that all those, you know, have dealings with this person, uh, let that person travel without let or hindrance whatever let is. <laughs> um, <clears throat> there were some, some of those available, but they were useless. Um, I had one that um, was okay, and I had a London contact trying to get another. Um, but I knew things all connected with uh, my own name would have been burnt. And there wasn't much left of the old riches that I could get my hands on. Thailand had drained me a lot of that. And all the scammers, of course, mm. had uh, jumped in. Oh, we're getting David out. We've got a plan. You know, the, the ones for the bail applications, the ones to manipulate the court. Unless you're the one doing the manipulating, it's hard to see that money uh, reach the right place. Oh, scammers then. They just assumed, okay, we'll scam his money. He's probably going to get the death penalty anyway. He's, he's finished. When you got out, did any of those scammers have second thoughts about what they'd done? Well, one that uh, disappeared with, um, oh, well, uh, it was at least $50,000. And uh, he'd been in touch with uh, Lee, my old contact there, and, and milked him for a fair bit. 
um, he was philosophical about it, but I did catch up with him. He was a, a Bostonian. Um, and, of course, I was annoyed, um, but I didn't do anything about it, and, and for this reason. Um, I was so depressed and suicidal at the time I was in um, uh, the prison there in Bangkok, even though I did suspect that he was uh, a bit of a scammer. When I met him in there, he was only doing some short sentence for uh, a bit of dope or something. He was out within a year. It sort of gave me hope, Sean, you know, that there was some possibility of survival. So uh, I owed him a little, even in his you know, uh, creepy, false way. Um, I think he's in... He might have even had some intention of doing something right at some stage. But anyway, there was not much left. So um, I have to uh, return to Europe. And um, I was getting a bit of a tan there. And I'd grown a moustache. I was looking a bit like a local, often dressed in the shalwar kameez, you know, the flowing robes, uh, to blend in. And I I started to realise that my passports looked like a Pakistani guy with a fake British passport trying to get through the airport. I thought, I need to clean that up. So I I didn't even really have any proper clothes. And have you noticed something about, my friends took me to tailors in uh, Quetta and elsewhere, but the the suits always came back ill-fitting. Have you ever noticed the way they can't do a collar properly in the small places there? So I went to a place where um, it was like Alibaba's cave. Um, it was a huge warehouse packed to the ceiling with bales and bales of clothes. What these clothes were um, were donations that well-intentional folk from uh, the US or, or Europe, England, had I donated and they got sent over there. Now, I don't know what people imagine happens to them there. Uh, do they picture somebody kind of young and well-meaning um, is standing on a street corner handing out, you know, mm, try this jacket. Trousers fit, we can take them up. <laughs> of course, none of that's happening. They get immediately taken in by the businessman there and uh, recycled and... Um, and unfortunately, too, uh, as it's done in Africa, it ruins the indigenous um, industry. Uh, they can't compete with all this free clothing. So a lot of the, um, the the factories that are producing cheap T-shirts for export, they do all right, but the, the local industries were just about destroyed. Seems every but, good cause gets co-opted these days. Um, yes, and you know, half the time when we think we're doing something good and noble, all we're doing is making things worse. So in... Um, I bought myself a, um, some uh, winter clothing and a, a Macintosh from Alibaba and had a little look around and he'd had some um, things that passing travelers must have got, including um, it was um, three gold CDs as an award for something called Atherton Studios for, um, I forget what, 100,000 copies of the three tenors. And it was ma- they were mounted on a plaque. And there was just something kind of interesting about it. Um, and he said to me, it's not real gold, you know. 
he'd never forgiven himself for buying this or stealing it, and it wasn't real gold. You know, I did explain that uh, gold CDs can't be real gold. Um, but I, I, I took that with me. And then um, on two kind of iffy passports, uh, where did I go? I flew, the, the Schengen Agreement within Europe had just started. That means no borders within the European Union, uh, though the UK still had um, uh, an immigration check. And I figured, what's the laziest airport uh, that I'm likely to have? Um, and I picked Athens because there was a, um, a PIA, Pakistan uh, International uh, Airlines flight, that went in a strange way all the way up to Oslo and then backtracked to uh, Greece. So um, that allowed me to get into Oslo, buy a ticket in the transit lounge, and then go into the Schengen area in Greece, arriving that way. Mm. Um, of course, my passport still told a slightly different story. Um, a lot of my friends back then, they used their ID cards from France or, or Germany and switched to those when they arrived in some other, you know, come off the long haul from Thailand, uh, pocket that passport, and then switch to the other one, especially going through Zurich or Geneva was very good for that sort of thing. They had a um, nice little post office. You could actually post that passport away from your, from your pocket uh, and then stay on the ID card. But I was a little bit nervous. Um, I thought, well, um, I didn't know how any of these things would hold up. And then I um, took trains across uh, there, across Europe, through Italy, uh, I took a, a kind of rattling overnight sleeper um, from Italy to Paris. And well, they, the, the guard on board takes everybody's passport and then gives it back later. And um, I, for my reasons, didn't like it, but my bunkmates in this uh, carriage didn't like it either. And talking to them, I could see they were all on phony documents. One said he was Iranian, another said he was Iraqi. I don't know what passports they were showing, but I don't think they could even read their own passports. So when the guard came back with all these passports, there was much relief in that carriage, <laughs> I can tell you. If you have escaped from death row in Thailand, and the Thai authorities are well aware of this now, does that therefore mean if you get caught in any of these countries now, if they've got an extradition treaty with Thailand, which most of them probably did, you're going right back to death row in Thailand. Um, not as it was, because um, Thailand hadn't figured out a way around um, explaining away the death penalty aspect of it. So I knew I was okay like that. But um, it, I just didn't even want anything. I didn't, I'd had uh, a few months... Uh, recuperation in Baluchistan and, you know, and really landing in Europe was um, the completion of the trip that I'd started when I disappeared under the radar in Australia, stopped in Thailand supposedly in Bangkok for two days and then was going on to Europe. So this was the same journey, just interrupted by two and a half years and having to escape from the place. Um, and uh, so, you know, as you go on, Sean, the, the tolerance for uh, disasters gets worn away. 
uh, you just don't have it so much. And of course, it didn't. You know, I finally got into um, smoggy London and, and smelt that smell. Have you noticed when you get to Heathrow, there's a particular smell to it, um, and and you remember that smell of London as a city. The whole country smells different when I got back from Arizona. Because when you get to Arizona, it's just like an oven as soon as you open the, the door of the plane. It really is that hot. Yeah, yeah, it's like an oven will just hits you. So you get back to England and there's the, the moisture and the cold and all the, the different smells. Mm. Um, and, of course, I went to um, uh, what are th things that were hidden. <laughs> One turned out to be a car park. <laughs> it was a house when I hid something in there. It was a car park. So that was out. Um, I was that I was, money you'd hidden there. Yeah, um, there was uh, another. I had some accounts uh, that had been um, grabbed under that seven-year rule uh, in activity because really we're going back to. Um, when everything was kind of all right in Australia, then the big arrest, the trial, the 10 years in there, then to Thailand. So I'm going back, in some cases, 15 years. And I found um, when um, uh, the font of congratulatory money started to dry up that I was in a, a, a cheap hotel in Paddington with one of those towels and it's like some scratchy kind of scouring pad and those microscopic soaps that you could lose somewhere in the back of your ear. Soaps. Yeah. Pretty, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I think communal showers, I think it might have even had or something worse than that. And I sort of had to kind of uh, laugh to myself while it had come to that. <laughs> but all was not lost, Sean. Oh, no. Oh, no. The three tenors. <laughs> the thickness of the the plaque that held the three tenors was about a half inch when I got it from Ali Baba's cave. Uh, when I began traveling, it was an inch and a half. Um, some As I'd left um, uh, Lahore, um, when it went through security, they thought it was a CD player. So I thought, he said, oh, where, where do you plug it in? Thought, yeah, okay. But the good thing in Europe, it was self-explanatory. It was in a nice presentation box. You know, it had uh, tissue paper. There was a little note in there, you know, one sound engineer to another. You know, we did it, mate, that kind of thing. It, it had all its, I had lots of time to make it look authentic. So I had a bit of cargo there. And uh, this was... Um, some pretty good heroin made uh, locally out in um, uh, just uh, on the Afghani border. But everybody I knew was gone. Uh, I just had one telephone number of a guy in Sweden I'd never met and the name. Okay. And oh, by the way, that had come to me through a, uh, a prison link, somebody I'd met. I can imagine how that's going to be quality stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Lucky the country existed, let alone the contact. So uh, with my uh, last shekels, I um, trained my way uh, through Germany and up crossing over from Kiel, uh, always overland, 
uh, it's quite expensive doing that by trains. It's a lot easier. But, um, and went off to meet uh, Thomas. And um, I didn't like using the phone, but there was no avoiding it in the beginning. Thomas. Yes. You can rely on a Swede to speak perfect English. Um, my name's Mike, or whatever I said. Um, we have a mutual friend. He said, I should get in touch. And Thomas said, pause, come round. It was a Sunday night. <clears throat> so uh, I found his uh, warm little apartment two floors up. He had opened the door. There's a cat. Uh, went into the living room. I liked it. It was somebody who took care with his life in, in some area. Um, there were lots of books there. The furnishings were, were soft. Clearly a bachelor, uh, a bit of a lost soul. And um, we chatted uh, about our mutual friend, the, the one who gave me the number, very briefly. And he knew I had something. He knew I wouldn't have been there without something. And um, I said, I have cargo. Oh. And um, extraordinarily enough, uh, when you've had a lot of bad luck, I had some good luck, he made one phone call, and then a kind of uh, half an hour later, a shaggy, long-haired guy called Wolf uh, turned up. It was wanted at the time uh, in Sweden. Um, and uh, all was well. This Thomas was a junkie, and but held down a day job uh, as a photo editor of some magazine. And uh, as we were waiting for Old Wolf, we got newspapers out and cracked open the three tenors. And I said to Thomas, be my guest. I will, he said. And it was good. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and of course, the, the price there at the time was uh, about three times what it would have been anywhere else. Um, and um, and it was the, one of the few places left in Europe that uh, uh, were those who liked that, um, uh, liked uh, white heroin. So um, it was the right place at the right time. Wolf came around. We talked about living in the countryside, how he developed a distaste for salmon, eating so much of it. Um, then he feasted his eyes on my uh, produce, and I told him entertaining stories about where it's been and where it came from. And um, <laughs> as always, the stuff looked up at me, glinting there on the, on the newspaper, saying, you're not sending me anywhere bad, are you? Don't worry, stuff. You'll find a home. Lots of happy people here. <laughs> and a very honest uh, businessman, uh, even in that trade. Uh, Wolf said he'd be back the next day. And uh, Thomas said, uh, because of Sukasa. And I, I started to make myself at, uh, at home there to sleep on the sofa. Um, but Wolf came back uh, earlier than I thought. And I had uh, the equivalent of... $200,000 by midnight on a Sunday, having landed with barely enough money for a cup of coffee 
and a taxi to Thomas's place on a contact given in a prison for a guy I didn't know. <laughs> so I had a blissful sleep that night, sleeping the kind of sleep that children have or only the truly guilty. <laughs> um, and then, strange thing, always that little flatness of, all right, I can eat, I can uh, house myself, uh, I can go on. Um, uh, where to next? Well, I had to stay there a few days to change all that, uh, all that uh, Swedish krona into UK pounds. Um, English travelers and tourists are always carelessly leaving their pounds in foreign hands. So it was my duty to get that back and, and bring it back to England. I said that to a judge once um, in my mitigation. So hinted that, well, at least I go and get back the money we leave with foreigners. <laughs> I wasn't impressed. Mm. <laughs> anyway, um, so I got back to London and then started uh, contacting people uh, of kind of the, the survival network from Colombia and uh, Carly and seeing who was who. Um, it, uh, it went very well for the next uh, uh, 12 months. Um, I got myself a, a muse house, Bedford Muse it was, down in Chelsea. Uh, just a one bedroom, but on uh, three floors. Um, uh, when I said to the uh, landlord that I was going to redecorate and put in um, electric curtains on the skylights. He didn't fuss too much about my dubious references. <laughs> and the, the thing that, um, of course, you can do if um, the references that you give when you say, I've lived in Australia for, or, or the United States I've been working, they, they can never really check them out. And anyway, um, it all, faxes were still in use then. So uh, the, the references went out. Michael back in Australia collected them from, them from the print shop and then sent back other documents. So that was enough for them and the money. Opened up an account at the Banco Bilbao Vizcaya down in Knightsbridge, one I'd had my eye on for a while. It looked like the kind of bank that, you know. Uh, I was just in there once uh, buying some foreign currency and they had one of those money counting machines behind the counter. And the customer before me, um, she was some um, rich Knightsbridge X-ray, you know, with those women that are all bones and jewelry. X-ray, oh my goodness! <laughs> Place was full of X-rays, and she wanted like five thousand pounds or something to squander on any young man that would put up with her company for a few minutes. So nonchalantly, the the cashier there, um, he just flipped it through. I said, oh, what do I need to open an account here? <laughs> not much was the answer. <laughs> and we're not going to read it too closely either. <laughs> so um, I had one of those um, and began having um, something of a life again. Now, what was that life? Yeah, uh, smuggling, of course. And I went back to Colombia um, and I wasn't... <laughs> Um, 
I kept out of the heroin business, not on any principle, of course, but uh, simply because it meant going back into Pakistan, uh, and I wasn't in a hurry. So what are you that. smuggling at this point, and what, how are you coordinating it? Right. Um, through the Scandinavian uh, links, um, I uh, met a few other people. Um, a couple of the couriers who'd worked for the Danish guys had been arrested in uh, different cities around the world, and some in Bangkok, and I, I got to know them, so that gave me a link uh, to there. Um, and um, the we're, within Scandinavia, the coke prices uh, were always quite a lot higher than the UK. Uh, and I don't know, I thought it made sense not to do any business here, um, but to keep everything to Northern Europe, um, where it was kind of calm and, and civilized and relaxed. Uh, what, and, what year uh, is this then now? Uh, where this is going to, uh, we're in 1996, 97, 98. So Escobar's dead and the Cali cartel are dominating the cocaine trade. Is that who you're getting your cocaine through? Uh, no, um, I don't know whether I've mentioned this before, but I, I found um, if um, if I, I, I met some quite big people in Colombia, you know, David, whatever you want, you can have it. It'll be delivered. Pick it up in Spain. Uh, Malaga particularly was popular. Uh, they had a kind of local branch office there. You know? um, <laughs> but here's the problem. Uh, you can imagine, Sean, you're starting to ask yourself, what is it I do here? In the end, all, all you're doing is selling their stuff for them in Europe. Um, the, the things that arrive, even if you start out buying your own and adding it to a shipment, what does that mean? Uh, one of yours got through, but nine of ours did. So you owe us £31,562.50 on each of those. And uh, I do what you want with the others. Um, so you realize quite quickly you're just going to be um, in a, a small cog in their big machine. You're a salesman, so, not a kingpin anymore. Yes, yeah. And not only that, exposed to their failings. Uh, so many times uh, I had to skirt around. There was, um, I call him Pablo, uh, though I have never actually written about him, even though he's gone with the wind. I suppose it can be written about now, but he was an, always trying new schemes. He had people and uh, suitcases going. He um, had um, it used that process where you um, take the cocaine and uh, dissolve it in alcohol, uh, mix in some. Um, uh, kind of plastic nitrate fibers, very tiny ones, microscopic almost. Uh, let it evaporate down. It makes a gray paste. That gray paste can be shaped into a kind of plastic. And when it dries, it's flexible, almost rubbery. Quite the worst part about bringing it back is having to chop all that up. Um, you go through a few coffee grinders doing it. They'll, they'll burn out. Um, 
though uh uh but it all all does come back once it's dissolved back but you, you need some pl i needed a place to do it um and you know three microwave ovens just little 10 second bursts a couple of people have blown up their own flats by uh, <laughs> getting a little bit uh impatient <laughs> but there's a kind of golden moment uh if i should shamefully call it that when this paste crystallizes back around the rim of the bowl that's in the microwave and kind of fluffs up and glints at you with that opalescent sheen and because it's your duty you have a line you know you can't be passing on something that might not be quite up to par. And was I sure that that was actually what I thought it was? I best have another. Your reputation's on the line. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you what, I, I haven't got the... Um, I've just kind of lost interest in so many intoxicants now. If I see Probably some... Uh, yeah. But I feel a bit... I, uh, weeks ago, I, I saw somebody I hadn't seen for a long time. And you know how the guys... Uh, chop up a bit you know. and and somebody else will say don't mind if I do it'd be rude not to I kind of feel like the kid whose mother's trying to get him to eat broccoli <laughs> mummy I don't want to eat my cocaine <laughs> you know it's just um, it, it won't be very good it, it, it won't be like it's from over there and it'd be full of those uh, nervy adulterants of the ephedrine and whatnot uh, so well, pure, that, isn't it? That, that crap the Albanians and deliver to your door twenty four seven. I still get a lot of um, um, WhatsApp messages from people like Joe and Tony, whoever the hell they are. I don't know how they got my number. Twenty four, and they you know their little logo. People put a, a picture in, in, in uh, of their face or something. You know, it's just a kind of twenty four seven sign on there. So. <laughs> um, yeah, great shine, you know, uh, banging, banging it is. Yeah, I think, you know, bang it yourself. I don't want to. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just it's just too tiring to 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 wake up with a, a hangover and have have to listen to a whole lot of crap spoken by halfwits. Uh, I don't have to go far to get that. So you know, I never really got into coke. I always I went into meth instead of coke because it lasted longer. Well, you know, the the thing is, too, um, uh, I knew a, a stockbroker who was turned into a swindler, uh, and he, um, I forget all the names, but it was some kind of speedy myth, apparently one that's a bit different or better, and days would pass Glass by. or ice. Um, it, it could have been, but um, what's mephedrone, mephedrine something? I forget which. But anyway, it kind, of, it kind of more or less gave him something to do all the time. But um, he ended up getting careless. He used to go into uh, upmarket um, uh, gymnasiums and saunas and get into the locker room uh, and lift all the Amex cards uh, out of the lockers. And before they you know, had towelled themselves off from the pool, he would have run around town and caused oh. havoc with them. Um and that it all, you know, get wasted or or well used, depending on your point of view on his uh, on his habits. Um, but uh, so um, because uh, 
Pablo could make it into anything. Um, yet here again, this was the same problem. I mean, I could, I'd have to be quite strict about it. I'd say, look, I'm paying you this 5,000, which is what uh, three times the price to have it made into whatever it might be. I mean, once used um, dinnerware plates and things like that. And, and I didn't want to uh, have all his disastrous crap. And he was always wanting couriers. And then he, he'd, he'd take them over to um, Lima uh, because uh, Bogota was hopeless to get out of. It was just too much heat. Um, and, and, oh, one of them got into trouble because uh, um, I'd sent him somebody who was keen to go, and I gave him lots of warnings. Look, do follow these rules. Don't take his SIM card. Don't ever take it. They're cheapskates. They'll give you the same SIM card that three people have been arrested with before. It's like not throwing away the murder weapon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And... Um, uh, this this poor young guy took the SIM card you know, uh, and made the call to family. And the SIM card, the DEA had all of his Pablo's cards and, and connections. And they didn't arrest everybody. You know how it is. Sometimes it's more interesting for them to let something go through. Uh, a lot of, for, for years, uh, they were letting entire Chicago networks uh, operate without interference while they built up a, a massive picture uh, of what they wanted. But um, I, I suppose it, um, times are changing for them too, uh, the DA, I mean, they, they, um, with the legalization of uh, weed, um, they've had to pretty much abandon all of that. Uh, I suppose within themselves they don't get funded. And they're not the big high-flying thing they used to be, really, are they? Well, you've got some states have delegalized, uh, decriminalized, legalized. Federal government still got it as a Schedule One substance. Well, weed? Weed with more... Oh, that's right. They can't bank, can they? So that is the DEA. And if you look at the work of the DEA, mm. marijuana arrests are a massive amount of the work, and not dealers, um, users, drug arrests in America in general. Users, users are the majority of the arrests. Well, that's that's how they stay in business. Money, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. So people say to me, Sean, people aren't still getting arrested in America for weed, blah, 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 blah. Sometimes on the comments when I say things like this, mm. there are people doing life sentences for weed possession in America right now under three strikes laws for weed possession. Really? If people don't believe that, just put in Google, life sentence, three strikes law, weed possession, and it will all come up. I was in the Cannabis Museum in mm. Amsterdam, and it had all that on the walls and stuff, about the, all these people doing these life sentences. Wasn't there um, stories of uh, some small towns uh, years ago when the laws allowed them to confiscate people's property and keep it within uh, the town? people were finding they got arrested on either trivial amounts or, or actually nothing, a setup, um, had all their property taken, uh, which the sheriff's department uh, was then able to use. Civil asset forfeiture laws in America are basically just, um, it's like the mafia coming in and extorting you and liquidating you. Mm. So, for example, teenage kids are out in the parents' car, they're on down some country road smoking weed, police come along, 
they take the parents' car. There's situations where that's the police have kept the parents' car on the civil asset forfeiture laws. Yeah. Yeah. Ha. Yeah, well, it's a hundred percent taxation, I suppose. Shape down. <laughs> <laughs> um, I should mention that when I returned to uh Europe I um took a, a detour to um Italy. Um going back what would have been uh almost fifteen years, um as I was preparing to uh leave Australia for good and, uh, of course, uh, take Clayley with me and, and, and move entirely. I, I'd rented uh, a villa in Torino and um, paid for it uh, in advance and Clelia sent um, a suitcase of hers there. Um, I don't know what really made me think that um, there'd be anything there, but I had time on my hands and uh, drove out there and uh, found that the, it, was, it was winter, so it wasn't being rented out. Uh, but the old caretaker there, uh, he lived there with his wife, he was a gardener as well. Um, when I more or less made myself understood, uh, he just the number of years and... Uh, Speaking of uh, Valise, he, uh, he he took me to a, um, a kind of shed, and um, there was a suitcase there from a little time capsule from fifteen years beforehand, and uh, I took it. And I thought, well, I don't know what to stopped on the roadside and had a look inside. There was a couple of uh, Clelia's dresses in there, and. Uh, some of her other clothing, and as I picked it up and smelled it, I imagined uh, there were traces of uh, some perfume she might um, uh, have. And she'd written me a note in there um, um, saying that uh, she was sure that I would uh, get to see this suitcase before her because... And David, you always case the place before I arrive to make sure everything's all right. How did you feel reading that and smelling that, all those smells? I mean, uh, really, um, a bit breathless and lost. Uh, of course, all the guilt from back then, and because I, I'd blame myself for her death, of course, uh, with good reason. Um, she shouldn't have been in that jail. I shouldn't have let it come to that. Um, and it just, um, you know, as you dispose of lives, uh, well, in mine, as I dispose of them, as I go on, um, they become a kind of series of pictures and almost as though they belong to somebody else. But this was suddenly made it all real, uh, and uh, I wasn't going to lug this thing around, so I, I, I went to take one of my own shirts out of there and, and, and stuffed it back in. I threw it in a river. The damn thing wouldn't sink. Just floated around. What do they say? Sorrow floats. Hmm. Um, so uh, some of the old, you know, most of it, I, I realized I'll just have to... Uh, 
I'll wipe everything from the past. So I was doing some business from uh, Colombia. I was doing quite well with that. Um, and um, I the, the Muse House in the garage there, I'd made a workshop so I could uh, build little things um, that I wanted. I, I made an architect's drawing board um, because the thing about hiding stuff, um, people look at a statue and they think, I'll hide it in the statue or, or some lumpy thing. Or well, how much could I get in that microphone if I you know, replaced it with a little crappy microphone and, and stuffed it in there? But they're thinking the wrong way. Um, something must instantaneously appear that it doesn't hold anything. Um, you could, I would imagine, um, if you had the patience for it, you could um, get some because everything's kind of been done. I bet you that there's barely anything uh, that I've thought of that somebody hasn't actually tried. But you could get um, uh, cotton buds, which have a little kind of very thin plastic straw. Uh, if you set yourself up a machine to pack something in that, then it's not a hiding place because it's just boxes of these plastic straws. Of course, you'd need another machine to kind of quickly um, saturate it and, and bring something back. Um, but people do some ridiculous things. Did you see that guy um, arrested in Spain a few weeks ago with um, the false toupee? <laughs> now, this, it looked like some ostrich had laid an egg on his head. Um, and he must have been, never mind the stretch or whatever jail or get out of it. It wasn't that much after all, less than a kilo. But uh, he must have been embarrassed having his mug shots taken. And, and I don't know whether it looked any better, you know, when he was stepping off the plane. <laughs> I'm guessing not. Because the way that they, <coughs> <coughs> they left the cocaine eggs sitting up there and then put the silly toupee back on there. <laughs> and which looked like chicken feathers or something sticking up into the air. Uh, you know, and so everything would be tried, but um, I suppose I don't think that it really worked terribly well. You can't. Um, something about buff headed, big headed people that attract your eye anyway, I would think. No, <laughs> oh, Pablo used to use the jelly bellies um, with some success. This one was, um, okay, the Coke's underneath, um, a layer of uh, sponge, and then a kind of a, a soft latexy uh, gut. And um, he had this guy, he, he said to me, Look, feel him, tap him down. And it, it did seem all right. It sprang back a bit. So at a pat-down search. But I, I did suggest to him that, look, why not give him, um, forget all the jacket, just because if they take his clothes off anyway, he's gone. You know, they'll see the retaining straps. So to prevent, just put him in a, a cheap Hawaiian holiday t-shirt, uh, shirt of silk or something that's a size or two too small. So his fat gut's almost poking out of this thing. And they just think it's some, you know, fat slob that you know, <laughs> uh, they wouldn't think anything of it. But I think, um, again, I think, of course, 
the authorities know that. That's why they try and you know identify the people. I did have a few people get through with ecstasy strapped around the midsection and then just close over it when we were testing our methods in the earlier All right. years. Yeah. Um, but this was where you knew they were going through um, electronic security, wasn't it? Yeah. So that there was no chance of a pat down. Well, if they'd looked mm. out of place, they would have been come with us. Pulled aside. Well, yeah. they just brisked through. Yeah. Mm. Mm. I noticed on a lot of the banged up abroads that I have, um, and it, it seems accurate enough from this point of view, extremely nervous, uh, novice um, career. You know, be, and people generally are a bit nervous in an airport anyway, but some of these people, you can see how easily they would have been jumped on. Um, because the, the best of the couriers, of course, didn't allow any of that into their mind. They were, the, the true fantasizers were already, you know, in some daydreaming world of... Uh, a lot of them were, won't be surprised to know uh, the ones who were gamblers were often attracted to that line of work. Um, well, um, I got a false passport for one. I said, look, you can pick any name you like. And so he picked first name Roland. Uh, that was right. What, second name, Wynn, W-I-N-N. And it took me a while to realize <laughs> Roland Wynn. You know, the roll the dice and you win. Uh, <laughs> I had one smuggler, and his uh, method was whoever the authority figures that were at the airport, he'd go up to them and ask them a question. Mm. Like he wasn't scared of them at all. Um, this is, it depends where you are. That's all right if you're uh, the foreigner in, in a foreign land. You can do that, say, to a, a, an Englishman, to a, an American or you know, another European. But it's a very risky strategy to do that here. I've seen it happen at... Um, <clears throat> where was it, Gatwick, where some somebody overdid that play, mm -hmm. uh, went up and said to the a customs officer who was standing around doing nothing, um, am I allowed two or three bottles of what? Uh, of alcohol. Uh, two, a litre. What are you asking? And you could say he was thinking... Why is this guy asking me a lame-ass question like that? You know, and suddenly he got all curious about him. You know, why is he palling up to me? You know, years ago, um, the, the they had porters. I don't even think they're around anymore, are they? Uh, and at um, they used to work at Gatwick, and they all were a bit. If you picked an experienced one, um, one put my not terribly big two suitcases onto the trolley. And as we set off, he said, uh, nothing to declare, is it? Um, so um, I followed his lead. He walked at a certain pace. When he walked past customs, he just kind of gave a you know, colleague nod. Like, leave me alone. I kind of, and you know what? He was not surprised at all when I gave him a 50-pound tip. <laughs> uh, I guess him thinking, yeah, it's still not much, is it? You know? <laughs> there you go, more invaluable lessons from David. <laughs> not that you should do that, because it's 
You don't want to be sitting around a prison cell telling the story, that's for sure. <laughs> mm. So, um, um, I kind of thought I might retire again. I had uh, the, the Muse House in London, um, and really um, plenty of money, nothing much to do with that, um, and even started... Uh, well, looking for sort of vaguely good causes to give it to. Uh, you know, my friends are saying, oh, you're feeling guilty, David. You, you. But uh, the good causes are not easy so much to give to, if, except for those supporting Sean's channel. <laughs> and that's a good cause if ever I heard one. With all of the demonetizations, we do now have donation links, Patreon links, PayPal, Just Giving, all in the description box below this video. If you want to support production of the True Crime Podcast and its regular high standard, we're appreciating everything that's come in so far. Thank you. You can wrap it in plastic and throw it over the bridge at London. We'll find it. Mm. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. Okay. Good causes. Well, I did kind of... I was protected in a way by that um, not having anything terribly much I cared about, nothing to lose. But then I met Eloise. Yes. <laughs> um, I, uh, I tried not to get uh, tangled up in any relationships. Uh, I certainly didn't want anything ongoing or complicated uh, if if I had a girl round to my little house, uh, well, that was rare anyway. I kept another place in Earl's Court, a little flat. Um, so that extra layer, I mean, I, I could sit in there and listen to music and felt pretty much untouchable. Uh, I just remembered, Sean, there's 2,000 pounds in that muse house. You know, the, these PowerPoint things, you know, the phony ones that used to be a safe? Probably still there. Not going to give the address. In the old banknotes. Yeah, yeah. You'd have to sell them as collector's items, wouldn't you? Uh, you can't change them anymore then. Um, well, well, I suppose that's what I'm thinking. You need to take them to what a numismatist or those people who collect money, banknotes. Is that why they do that then? So people who've laundered money or hid money years later, if there's a new note, those people, that money's squashed. Yeah. Kind of. Some countries do it worse than others. India notoriously um, uh, said that all the values over um, 5,000 rupees would be have no value. This is a certain date. And people were you know, pulling it out from the mattresses and trying to do things with it. But it was a rush job. Uh, they only gave them about three weeks. Uh, it was a, it, it, it's, it's a way of governments getting out of their debt, I suppose, isn't it? Um, but uh, so I didn't, I, I didn't really want anybody in my life like this. But um, uh, there was something kind of in, intriguing uh, about this girl. I met her at um, uh, some do-gooder outfit. It was a, <clears throat> a, a combination of uh, economists and greens. Who, uh, I mean, you can imagine the trouble they caused. Um, but I kind of got bored with it a bit. But as she came out of the office, uh, she passed by. And we, we got talking. Um, 
and we had lunch. And I realized that there's nothing much I could say about my past. Um, you know, I can talk about nonsense forever, as you know, but um, <laughs> uh, I'd sort of avoid anything that, that, that had a past. Um, uh, but she knew from my accent there was, there was some Australian background. Um, but I would annoy her because when, when I met her dad, you know, I'd, I'd drop the Australian accent entirely. So, um, <laughs> no, he's not from here. <laughs> um, and, but she was very skittish. Have you ever pursued some girl that is alluring, drawing you in, but runs away at a touch at the same time? Well, then, um, incentivizes you to try harder, doesn't it? Well, yeah, and you, you feel like you're being the mug because that's you know an old game that one. But um, I don't know. There was something about her. I, she must have had a very high pheromone count or something like that. But I mean, I tried to, and she had a long list of phobias. Sean, she hated umbrellas; would rather stand in the rain. She didn't like the dark spaces under bathtubs. I took her to the portrait gallery. She looked around it. All dead people, she said. Oh, at, at Blake's, you know, nice hotel, shishi, upmarket, restaurant there. Sat there worrying all night. This is too Byzantine or something like that. You know, expected Turks to run out with scimitars at any minute. Or something like that. <laughs> Would ring me up in the middle of the night and um, I'd, I'd go around there, but just away from the prize. So it, it became a bit of an obsession. Um, um, and I suppose it, it gave me something to do. I couldn't uh, flatter her with too expensive jewelry because she'd uh, worry about that it was too high a value. And um, I, I, I pulled out all stops one day by bringing um, uh, an old... American girlfriend of mine from years ago, Sylvia Troy, who was very good looking, and I thought, well, this has got to work if you've got the competition there. What triangle? Said, yeah, I said, Sylvia, kind of hang off me a bit tonight. The um, she's supposed to bring somebody, but she didn't. Screwed the whole thing up, and um, it, it it didn't work at all. All she was was sort of broken hearted. Um, and I put her in a taxi and she looked like I just told her I had to have a cat put down or something like that. <laughs> uh, but, um, oh, and I think she was a bit nuts too. Uh, mother was in a nut house and um, she used to see some kind of a, a psychologist or something like that, counsellor, um, and had a bad experience with an older man years earlier when a psychiatrist put the hard word on her. So I thought this psychologist was needed to be gotten rid of too. Well, I'll, I'll cut through the chase here. Uh, finally got her in the end. Um, and then she turned to me and said, well, you took your time. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> ah, but you know where things are going wrong here, Sean? Mm. I've got something to lose. <laughs> oh. Mm, something I like. A weakness now. Uh, something I care about. Um, something that uh, I'd want to protect. And, and it always seems to be a curse. Uh, 
when you've got something. You know, the people who sail through life, through minefields and, and bullet storms, they're the same people that don't care. But the ones who've got something they want to protect, uh, they're in real danger. That's how they got Escobar in the end. Wasn't it? It was through um, careless phone calls or something, wasn't it? He was protecting his family. They, they killed a nanny. They killed a kid's teacher. And they made it clear that they were going to chop the kids up and send them to Pablo in a plastic bag. He could have been hiding out in the jungle. When you say they, which the, is the death squad, Los Pepes. Oh, yeah. Run by um, the Castaño brothers and Don Berner. Mm. They said they were going to chop his kids up and send them to him in a sack. So he stayed in town, Medellin. Mm. He was on the farm with them. That's how they got him. They knew if they just tightened that noose. Didn't he have <clears throat> somebody who'd misled him into thinking that this some kind of message service that he was using or, or phone system was immune from intercept. Well, but his brother fact, had warned him that it was being intercepted. Oh, and because he stayed on the phone longer than the minutes that he felt was safe, his son believes he gave himself up on purpose to sacrifice himself for the family. Because in the end, it looks like the, the kill shot, there was a shootout with Las Pepes, but the, the mm -hmm. kill shot went right through his head. And he said he was going to do that rather than get captured by the Castaño brothers. Yeah, and that wouldn't have been pleasant. They <laughs> said they were going to ch chop his arms and legs off, yeah. have a doctor keep him alive and throw the torso on the streets of Medellin. Mm. So that would guarantee their legend. All this in my new book about Pablo Escobar, Pablo Escobar's story, longest book ever written in the Western world. Um, one of the, the part, parts one, book. parts one and two are out now on Amazon worldwide. Yeah, Pablo uh, Escobar's story. It's mm. going to be over a thousand pages long. It's going to be four books. Wow. Yeah. Uh, are you going to record the audio version? No, I've learned that I am not. That is a skill set I do not possess. Oh, that the hard, I learned the hard way. It hasn't worked out so well. <laughs> I posted one book that I narrated and whew, read the reviews. <laughs> Scathing. Hmm. <laughs> Well, perhaps you'd like me to read your books for you. Well, let's get yours up. Let's see how your reviews pan out. But I think they're going to be very good because you're a natural. Um, well, I think it'll be easier to read than uh, I've got a slightly florid uh, writing style. And then I think me saying it will make the points clearer because you can pause to let the reader catch up. So where am I here? Um I think, what do I need to do? Um, I need to really settle the people I'm in business with. Um, you can't really just walk away from something. Say, I'm fine, boys. Uh, look, it's a couple of numbers. Kick on with it. Um, you really have to kind of bring people together so that they feel um, way in the background. You're the honest broker in between everybody. Um, now, that applies for all the businessmen, which was fine. Um, the Cali people had a place to go. Um, I'd had um, I, I had a, um, a connection with uh, Bobby Jr. was the son of a, um, a, a captain in one of the New York families that I'd met years ago. They took me on a little tour back in the 70s of... Uh, <clears throat> how they uh, ran their operation. They'd take over uh, uh, apartments and put a steel door there with a little trap door. And the customers would come up and buy dime bags and the police were in on it and all of this. This is the Italian mafia? Yeah. And 
But um, the son, Bobby Jr., uh, always claimed he, he had nothing to do with anything. You know, he, he wasn't uh, a bit like, what's that guy, Michael Francisi? You know, so, yeah, fully in it, but lots of denials. Um, and I'm just, I can't really give his real name at the moment. I'm just waiting for one person to drop dead um, so that nobody gets harmed. Um, and do you think Francis denies things to a certain point because of the statute of limitations on those crimes? I think he's had uh, a lawyer give him some tips on what it's safe to um, tread on and, and what you can't. Um, I did get an email from him. I did. And he has agreed to be interviewed. Mm. But yeah. how are you? It would have to be scheduled if, when he comes to the UK because he's yeah. been to, he spoke at, I think it's Oxford or Cambridge, and he's done interviews here before. Well, he does guest speaking and all of that kind of stuff anyway. Um, so, yeah, he, I think there'd be quite a bit of interest there. It's, it's odd that with my criminal record, I can't go out to all these countries. Oh, yes, that still haunts you. Well, how, how can he go to all these countries? It's... Yeah, curious. Yeah. But um, there might be a way around that, Sean. But uh, anyway. <laughs> I do know ways around it, but no more felonies. Misdemeanor? <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. Um <laughs> A flying boat from uh, Miami. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but uh, amongst the people I knew that made uh, um, yet another retirement uh, less straightforward, the class of people that are, I call orphans. Have you ever had somebody around you or within your little group that you ask yourself, how the hell did he ever get part of this thing? <laughs> Who introduced him? And what the hell does he do that ever works? <laughs> Such a, a well-intentioned, like a puppy, always staring up at you. But if you so much as sent him to the corner shop for a packet of cigarettes, two hours later you've got the police calling you, saying, you know, there's multiple pile-up and he's been <sighs> indicted for uh, cigarette laundering or something. Wild Man was quite good purifying those people, let's say. <laughs> oh, right. Well, that's another alternative. <laughs> we would cast them off quite quickly. <laughs> mm. um, but uh, it, it's always served me badly. I, if somebody hasn't really done anything wrong to me, um, I don't mind paying them off. But they're, they're, they're sticky orphans. They want to get into your life and mess around it. And... If, the desperately needy, by the way, are very, um, they've got encyclopedic memories of anything you might have written down. Um, this guy turned out, uh, Billy Green was his name. I mean, Thomas, for example, in, in Stockholm, very straightforward uh, to retire off, uh, introduced him to somebody else, so he still got his little commissions. Um, but he didn't take care of himself. When I When I'd visit there, I'd stop at a supermarket, get cat litter, cat food, a whole lot of food for him, sort out his refrigerator. He just kind of neglected himself. himself. Um, so, uh, but the, 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 the dangerous orphan is the, the Billy Green type. Billy Green was a, a Liverpudlian failed boxer who ended up uh, arrested in Thailand for uh, running around with uh, forged U.S. currency that was uh, done in Malaysia. Quite a big uh, forgery uh, capital, Kuala Lumpur. They, they, they do a lot of that. 
Well, he did me a favour once over a passport, and I that I owe him not really. I paid him well enough. But um, how do you want out, Billy? I said. Well, of course, he he'd, he'd found love in his own way in a bar room somewhere in the Philippines and showed me all these pictures of some village girl tattered up like, I don't know, a dog in a pony contest or something. <laughs> and um, I said, well, where, where does all this go? Oh, she wants, I mean, I want to um, get a house in her village and, you know, kind of racking up what this is going to cost. I said, look, um, 20000 is it, you know, for, for, you've got me a couple of passports, great, fine, but this is it, I'll give you that. But can't I, uh, I, I want to run my own thing. I don't know what the hell he was talking about. He, he couldn't play a game of snap with a five-year-old. I don't know what he meant by running his own thing. He wants to outshine the master. Mm. Well, um, I rang around and there was somebody in, in Denmark who said, well, if he brings me a few careers, I'll give him a commission. And that was it. So I gave him the usual rules, you know. Billy, uh, don't write things down, don't keep a diary, yada, 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 this is what you've got to do. Uh, don't start running around with this shit yourself because you're not cut out for it. You look like a big lump quivering uh, as you transport transported through an airport. No wonder those dollars went astray. I mean, uh, yeah, 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 Dave. Yeah. So where are you going to be living? <laughs> oh, the moon, as far as you're concerned, but so... So uh, I kind of uh, forgot about him. But um, things were going pretty good with Eloise. I'd finally got her to travel. She had a phobia, by the way, against uh, aircraft. <laughs> um, and um, she, she she had what was another phobia. Well, one night we were out someplace and there was a few drunks. Well... I set her down somewhere because if the drunks got went over the top, I didn't want her seeing anything too nasty because that would make me seem like you know some desperado or something. So um, I said, "You look that way. I'll just talk to the chaps. They're a bit happy tonight." Well, I kind of tricked them anyway. I had in my from my workshop. I had uh, this thing that sounded incredibly like a gun being cocked. Is this your lessons in? The uselessness of guns. Uh, yeah, this is number <laughs> six or seven, I think, at this stage. I mean, if I had a real gun, what am I going to shoot? Some drunk in London? There's cameras everywhere. And you can't shoot just the one. What are you going to do with the other, the two witnesses? Uh, sorry, guys. Uh, not looking good for you two. You do each other or... And time is on the march. I've got a very skittish girlfriend around the corner. Uh, the sound of gunshots and then me running around cleaning my hands and throwing something into the Thames and then saying, um, no, Eloise, all's fine. They um, they just wanted directions. That's right, yeah. Mm. Any big rocks around here and some twine? <laughs> um, so, yeah, they, um, they weren't so far gone that they would have fought me anyway, regardless of a gun. Some are, some are like that, but the one was sober enough to call it a day. But I came back and she was still neurotic, you know. So I thought, well, I, I've got to keep this kind of stuff to a minimum. But then something came up. I got a call from uh, 
his lordship, Lord John Magsy, he was in prison over um, something or other. I think somebody had gone missing or found decorated on a bridge or something like that. But um, as always, not something he couldn't get out of. But um, while I was there, um, the uh, his cousin, whose name's Iftikhar, used to... Um, Show me around. Tell me, how are we doing for time, by the yeah, way? Yeah, we're fine. Uh, half past 11. Okay. Um, good. Um, because um, little Iftikar was a teacher, really. But because his uncle was um, who he was, of course, if uncle said, you know, if he go and do such and such, he, he did it. Uh, Iftikar had gone missing somewhere uh, over the Afghanistani border. Now, I figured this whole story, which I'm hearing through that call shop that used to be in South Kensington on the corner there near the tube station, that was a busy little call shop. You know, there are Russians on every line. I got, I mean, imagine somebody's in one of those booths on a phone and they've got three mobiles there, you know, switching from one to the other. So um, anyway, I'm hearing this story and thinking, yeah, uh, from one of the family, uh, one of the guys with Neil John's outfit, I'm thinking, what do you know, how much is this going to cost? I mean, cut to the chase. But I also knew another thing about um, Pakistan. Whoever you send the money to, that's their gift from God. That's their bounty. It doesn't go anywhere past there. You can't, um, and there's nothing you can do. Um, I, countless people I know have sent money over there and it's just disappeared. Even from the people they were doing business with. And I asked her, an old friend there, what, why is it so? Well, we kind of figure if somebody sends you money, it's a gift. But what if it's linked to some business arrangement? Oh, they'll come. We'll do the business, but not that money. That's the gift. So I thought, well, if I'm going to just waste money, I can do it, but it won't resolve anything. I'll have to go. So... Um, I said to Eloise, I'll be away uh, for one, two weeks tops. I'm really digging my grave here, aren't I? So uh, I um, did all the precautions, um, figuring that might bring me some good luck. You know, hid sets of keys to places, uh, paid out rents in advance on um, other two flats in in the Muse house. went to the bank and made sure the storage deposit box was paid up for 10 years or the most they would take. So really planning for um, the worst. Had two absolutely clean passports. Uh, uh, Nothing wrong with those. One I was keeping in reserve. I mean, there's no reason for any of this to to come to anything. But um, I'm taking extra precautions because if you don't do it, then you'll need it. So... Um, now, um, I've, n- I've never really gone into much detail o- about Pakistan because it's so hard to understand. It is not, the na- it's a name of a country, but that's not what's there. Uh, where the British Empire was and where India is, it's uh, hundreds, if not more, uh, of different communities, different little worlds with their own thing. So that even though it's homogenizing a bit and, and unifying, you know, in the modern world, 
uh, its roots are certainly not that way. So when trying to figure out what's going on and where it is, you very much have to uh, take into account um, what are the kind of people you're uh, dealing with. Sort of. <clears throat> okay, uh, I went into Pakistan. Of course, I don't stay at a hotel. I stay with my friend in Lahore. Allah Mekbal town. It's a um, kind of middle class, you could say. Um, then, in, in their own small way, they have their own domestic mischief. They don't actually pay for their electricity. They, the gas meter is completely rigged. Uh, they've all sunk um, uh, wells down in their, their back garden. But there is no back garden because they own the land they built the damn thing into like those concrete blocks right to the road. And come to think of it, we'll take a bit of that road, we'll take the footpath. <laughs> That's not enough, we'll take some of the road itself. Encroachment, they call it. Uh. You know, while I was staying with my friend, the, uh, the electricity would go out, and I'd go into the street and talk to the neighbours. Um, oh, it's terrible, uh, Mr. David, yes. Uh, um, uh, they're all thieves, you know. Uh, but, but you are, we know that you've got a, you're on hot wiring on the, have you ever seen the, the, the cables that all tangled up in the, um, just a massive wires, just, you couldn't even find your way through it. All the big fuses to, that's why it keeps blowing, all the big fuses have been nicked, sold on, and a bit of copper piping have been shoved back in there, <laughs> even if they're one inch diameter and about six inches longer. So, um, uh, one neighbour was uh, a low-ranking customs officer. Another one was at uh, some marriage hall. It's a kind of um, uh, local meeting place. They're all upstanding local citizens. And when I said, look, we'll go down to the electricity board. Uh, yes, we should. We'll go down there and see what's going on. And they all melted away. <laughs> <laughs> and my friend Adnan said, look, it's, uh, they've all got something to hide. You know, so I had a lot of lessons there about um, um, how to approach things, but I had plenty, plenty more to learn. Um, Adnan gave me his uh, crappy old Browning gun. So who is Adnan? He was a guy I met years ago, and he was in Australian prison, uh, arrested for there, had an uh, Australian passport, but had returned there, and we'd done a little business, and he'd um, built a house, so... Though he wasn't in the business, we we, we stayed friends. Um, and I'm not going near any hotel. It is not the kind of place. If you go to a cheap hotel, they're all over you for local reasons. Uh, if you go to an expensive one, uh, all the spooks and the uh, agencies and the, the higher uh, level um, police, they want to know what you're doing. Unless they can satisfy their curiosity, they're going to make it their business to find out. So you can't go to the Hyatt or even the Marriott there. Um, I knew a guy a few years ago who was sent by some London villains to sort out an already disastrous deal. He put himself in the Hyatt and was arrested three weeks later. Um, I, um, I didn't go to see Norjan because whatever he would tell me would be as much as he uh, loved his uh, cousin, he was he was he would have distracted me in his own little thing. So um, I thought I'll go up north where um, Iftikhar was last seen, and they had some. He was supposedly sent up there on um, uh, a smuggling 
scheme, which involves the um, it's the Afghan Afghan uh, trade agreement. It works like this: uh, Afghanistan has got no port, so if somebody's um, importing something from the outside world into Afghanistan and it lands at Karachi port, that container is sealed up and it's sent through. There's no duties or taxes to be paid on it. It's meant to be paid once it gets to Afghanistan. In reality, um, television sets, washing machines, all sorts of stuff comes in that way, gets across the border, is unpacked and sent straight back into Pakistan uh, where all those taxes uh, are avoided. Um, now, that, that uh, almost sounded like pretty straightforward business, so he, he, he shouldn't have really gone missing over that, but things do happen. Um, <clears throat> I went to, um, I went from uh, Lahore to uh, kind of traveling more or less on my own. Um, the next person to meet was uh, Cameron, who was supposed to be his driver uh, when he went missing. Nice guy. He was one of Nord John's uh, um, top men, uh, but he was being a bit evasive about it. <clears throat> and somebody else, uh, when, I, when I got to Peshawar, uh, I took the old Grand Trunk Road, which goes through there. It's really nice at night. You have these massive trucks with painting and decoration and jangling bells and, and little good luck things. All I mean, I know it's supposed to be Muslim, but they still have all the, the Hindu gods to uh, appease. So uh, truck drivers uh, don't take any chances when it comes to pandering to some god. They'll cover the lot. Um, and it, it, it kind of looked like a trail of uh, elephants uh, on circus parade going through the night uh, with all of these, these places. Um, I found one man who uh, had a better idea, who was an Afridi. Now, the Afridi tribe, as it were, is another clan. They don't have territorial ambitions. Uh, they are pale, generally pale-skinned, um, uh, stocky. Um, this got a reputation for being very astute businessmen. Um, kind of sometimes spoken of as the um, as the Jews of uh, northern Pakistan, um, meaning they're very clannish and um, good, good at business and support each other. So usually a very good source of information. Um, I uh, managed to get from him uh, something that was um, true enough that... Um, Noor John had found better uses for the money for all the goods that were sent over there. So uh, his cousin was grabbed until payment was settled for that because the goods had already gone. Unfortunately, uh, Afghanistan at the time was even more lawless than usual. It had just been through, um, a, the Russians had left and um, something resembling kind of governments had come and gone and the Taliban were just uh, emergent at the time. Um, so I was, I crossed into uh, Afghanistan by um, taking the, um, that windy road through the Khyber Pass. 
but you don't go through the uh, the main border checkpoint uh, because you probably won't make it. They'll just be so curious what you're doing. Doesn't matter what papers you've got. So you take the hole in the fence, which is uh, 500 rupees down the road. Switch taxis a couple of times. Uh, I detail all this in my book, so if people want to navigate a, uh, a, around that kind of thing, there's quite a few tips about that. You've got to ditch these taxi drivers because they'll have ambitions on you. Um, and I also had uh, I'd bought um, a Pakistani passport um, a, a couple of years earlier, which you might think, well, that, that's not going to work. Well, there's about 20,000... Pale-skinned people who are the um, biologically the castoffs or from uh, the British Raja who have kept English-sounding names and yet are Pakistan citizens uh, during the transition. Their kids sort of kept it up. So it's not absolutely out of the question that um, uh, Frank Engineer or, or or John Martin or something could be a Pakistan citizen. It's, What's know, striking that, that me here is you've escaped from Thai death row. You've got this operation going, money coming in. You've got a good amount of money. Met a nice woman, Eloise. And you live in kind of, a, you've got a, a good degree of security. Mm. Now you're in post-Russian occupation, uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, where you could die at any moment. Security is gone. Well, I know you swing. Probably... I can feel my tension rising as you're telling me this. I the know swing can... from the safety to now something bad could happen and will and is going to happen. Um, some bear in mind that sometimes I'd have uh, I'd been back to Pakistan a couple of times, and then I come back to Eloise and and I think of an interesting story about <laughs> you wouldn't believe it truck blew up that was meant for somebody else and I think I can't tell her that one that's not good or you ever found a hand landing on your lunch no no No, definitely can't tell it oh yeah oh I've got to tell you a beauty about all that later on David is just setting the table for what's about to happen next and we're nearly Mm. at the two hours but keep going Mm. okay Um, I'll I'll have to cut through a few things here but um, I had to when I got through, bear in mind this is back in uh, 1997, 98. Um, the mobile network almost doesn't exist. In the big cities in Pakistan, the jazz network uh, was up and running, but the government would close it down from time to time. But people had um, cell phones. And there wasn't much doing in, in Afghanistan, but a lot of the traders would cross over with their cell phones to get onto the Peshawar network which was within range. And somebody enterprising had put a transponder near Jalalabad, so it picked up some signals. Otherwise, people used um, these PCO, public call offices. You you went there, you paid some money, they had uh, different phones to call through people. But um, I needed some help in all of this. So one of the, if we go back 16, 17 years earlier, one of um, my Thai contact, Lee's family, uh, met him when he was a, a teenager. And it was all very westernized. They had sort of like westernized music. He used to call me Leo Sayer for some reason. I had that hair up to there. Um, 
And um, he was around with his friend, uh, Sayed, even though he called himself Abdul. I mean, there's no point keeping track of any of these names because they all changed it. And the reason Sayed was now Abdul is because he had to kind of blend in. The young guys were starting to wear all this black tunic stuff. And they were in Jalalabad, it was a big bus junction transport uh, point. And um, uh, this was where the Afridi told me that Iftika, the cousin, was being held when he last heard anything about it. That I, did I want him? No, 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 I said to the Afridi. Uh, look, I'm here on some other business. I just met the family in London. They just want to know if he's all right, that's all. I just, if I can talk to him, fine. So um, uh, Lee's family guys have grown up by now. They met me there. And um, now they brought guns, of course, but there was this thing where you, if you carry it in a bag, you're, you're not planning on blowing somebody away. Uh, but if, you, if, if you've got it shouldered, it kind of means something else. These are all these kind of little signals between each other as to what it means. Um, personally, I can't see... <laughs> What's the point of having it in a bag? If it kicks off, you're going to be the loser. Just give me a minute. Drawstring, catchy thing, you know. So let me just get this clear. The guy you're trying to find, mm. you've found, ascertained that his cousin has been kidnapped. And you're now asking... Nurjan, my no, tribal lord friend, his cousin's been kidnapped or taken hostage over money that was not paid. And he's being held by somebody... Uh, that is, is was tied up with the smuggling operation, and you're but, and you're about to meet the armed kidnappers now on the pretext that you just want to see. Yes, say, I've said to see this guy's okay. My um, friend connections there from from family back in in Thailand. Look, this is the position. Um, you know, so what, what do you do? You want him? Even they, I wasn't going to tell. I wanted him. It would have changed the dynamic completely. They're starting to talk about big money then. And what ambitions. protection have you got going in this situation to think that you might not get kidnapped? Um, the bag man seldom is. I always remember um, uh, an operator from um, who went into Somalia uh, years ago, worked for one of the uh, ABC network, and they they want they had to. Um, they had to set up the broadcast. So I mean, you remember those pictures of the Marines landing on the beach? The night vision goggles being blinded. Gulf War One. By yeah, uh, well, it was part of the Somalia opera, okay. operation, and um, in a Black Hawk Down era thing. Why do you think the um, news networks will set up there to film the arrival of the Marines when they're supposed to be invading? Because they had the bagmen go in, and the bagmen go in and with two suitcases full of money. And my friend who worked that job said, "Look, you arrive, you're going to lose that." Fine, that's perfectly all right. But you say to them, mm. oh, the strongest of you, help yourself. But there's more coming, and it will, but I need some things. Uh, what property? Well, the Saudis got out of town in a hurry, so their whole embassy was up for, um, for rent, sale, whatever, takeover. It had a generator in there, so uh, ABC Network took that one and set the satellites on, on the roof. Uh, the bagman, the fixer, I said, yeah, um, uh, flew in some um, some more money, and um, 
it is, it, after there was a bit of discussion amongst the warlord groups, you can imagine, that was deafening, uh, um, the survivors came back into the, uh, to see the background and said, well, we're it, we're your security team. Uh, and they said, well, what's the matter? That, why is the water not working here? And so they'd fix all that and put the electricity on for crying out loud. I want to get something to it. So they, they were sending their men off to fix all this and dreaming of these suitcases full of money. They wow. had to fly in some suitcases because the airport was all knackered and uh, had been bombed or something by the Americans. Um, they, the only flights, there were still 10 planes a day coming in in uh, long hops from the other side of Africa um, by, you know what they were carrying? Cat. Yeah. And they, those cat smugglers were the only people with a functioning airline. So uh, the fixers got that. So if I'm in some weird messed up place, I always thought, no. I mean, well, when we started out years ago, my friends and I, it was you had to be able to go into a place and and take some control of it. You you couldn't be fearful and, and run away and be all Western and 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 chicken hearted about it. Besides, if you keep in their minds, the story in play, their future. You look like, a, I tell you what, I, I wish you could come to London with me because well, that's it. They're daydreaming of all sorts of things. They're not going to kill you. They're going to kill anybody who looks at you. That's what they're going to do. <laughs> so um, anyway, uh, my two guys have uh, made a couple of calls and some people have turned out. We're in the back of a public call office. Um, which is the only place for a bit of privacy. There was a guest house or somewhere else, but this was um, the only thing. And the owner of it went away and left us in peace. I half thought he might even turn up, you know, for a quick sale, um, but no. And I really knew then that the guys who'd arrived didn't have him. Um, and I said to uh, my friends, "They look just please." Tell me what they say, translate, and don't add anything. So you've got one person protecting you with you. Yeah, or two. Two people, yeah, okay. Yeah, he and his friend. And um, and how many of them are there? Uh, on the other side, just two, Zero. two each. So it's balanced. But I notice the guns have somehow lost their bags. <laughs> um, but they're nicely propped up in a civilized sort of way. And we're kind of getting along. I said, look, I just want to talk to him. I want to be able to say to his sister. And I pulled out some Af Afghanis, which is the local currency. By the way, if you were ever doing business in some dump, uh, don't start waving around euros, pounds, or US dollars. No, 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 no. Change the map up no matter what, because they're used to the local money no matter how devalued it is. You start bringing something exotic in, ups their daydream level, doesn't it? You know, how much more has he got? Should we just eat him now and take what's left? You know, uh, none of that. So your, your bargaining power is reduced if you're bartering for items of clothes on your summer holiday. That's what David's trying to say. Here. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> and and also, of course, I'm saying, look, I've got other business to do here. Oh, what, 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 what? Uh, never mind. Um, it turned out that he'd been, because the money wasn't paid, he was sold on to somebody else uh, connected with the, 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 the Taliban people. 
So these guys didn't even have him anymore. Didn't even have him. They were just seeing what they could get. I gave them about 500 uh, um, pounds in Afghanis um, just to see what information. But my, the, the, Said was getting angry with them because he was seeing through them. And I told him, don't get angry with them. I won't get to learn anything. I need as much information as, as possible. Um, and got one of them to agree to, to, to contact um, the new people that had him. They didn't call him that. You know, our friends are holding him. You know. So because his um, mobile didn't work, we were too far away from uh, the border. He went, he looked at his phone and then got the number and went to the public call office button. So everybody's happy now. You know that um, it's going to be later and I, tomorrow, no, can't be tomorrow, later tonight. That's fine. And uh, I went and had a little nap, changed my clothes out the back. I thought it was good that they're getting on. I heard laughing, you know, lots of table slapping and getting along well. Then ridiculously deafening sound as they were celebrating something. You know, the way they fire their guns out of into the air to conclude a deal uh, and all of that. I, these buses, why inside a building? Are they out of their mind? You can't hear anything, Sean. It, it's just absolutely deafening. Well, there was a lull in all that, so I thought I'd better go in and shut them up, and it's drawing attention to us by some other who knows what. As I walked into the room, it looked like somebody had dropped 10 bags of talcum powder in the air. This white dust was floating down, and I couldn't even work out, remember I'm still half deaf. Well, was this come from outside? Now I realized, well, wait a minute, there's, there's only two small windows up on top. And then as, as the air cleared a bit, I realized it was bullets going into the walls, you know, the, the cheap plasterwork that had set off uh, all of this dust everywhere. No movement of these red rags on the floor, except for one who had his leg twisted up under, underneath him. Uh, my friend, clearly out to it, had those, you know, the eyes are just little slits like that, just a little bit open. Um, couldn't really work out who'd started it or what it was over. Um, but my hearing's starting to come back. Uh, and we'll call them the bad guys just to distinguish the, the kidnapper side. He was, um, he was under the table and, uh, I had to look around because at least I had the presence of mind to remember that it was his phone that had the number that counted uh, in this mess. Um, and he had that. It looked like a, a white mask on his face, but it was actually the cartilage of his nose where a bullet had gone right through. And this strange temptation to poke my finger into it. I don't know why. Anyway, I, I had other things to uh, think about then. Um, there was one, I had old Adelan's old Browning, which I, I, I left on display a bit, but I think the one that had a little bit of movement in him, he wasn't long for this world. You know when, when the blood's coming out in blobs? That doesn't go on all night. A uh, few minutes at best. But this is not the place to be. Um, somebody owns this call office, and this guy's going to be well pissed at finding everything. But um, the only thing I did with that gun was shoot the telephone. 
the call office one because um, it last made that call to um, uh, the next layer onwards. And I, I've got I've got the the mobile phone that's got the number on it, so at least I've got that. Um, it was a funny old phone too. Anyway, that's a technical story. <laughs> um, interesting way it worked. So um, I got out of there, out the back way. Um, I switched back into uh, Western clothes because I wouldn't seem like part. Of, previously, I'd been like one of the guys, and. And realized then that um, I'd been going wrong about this whole thing entirely. I'd been because I was settled in in, in, in London with Eloise. I, I was inviting trouble by not taking a sensible approach to the whole thing. So um, <clears throat> I jumped into an, um, the aircon taxis and uh, went to Kabul. Uh, it was better. I didn't want to go backwards in this. And uh, I had a number. Um, but this was not somebody uh, I wanted to call. <laughs> exactly. Stayed at the Park Hotel. Now, the Kabul was a real mess <clears throat> by then. They'd fought over various things and the place was all smashed up. Um, it's It's... How can I, in two seconds, summarize the history of it? They've gone through five governments, two different kinds of flags. Um, the the party, the loyalty of the old king's gone. Uh, the, the Russians have left a bit of a legacy. In fact, the time of the Russians, back in 92, was the best it had ever had. Women were in universities then. That's why these Taliban got all pissed, see? <laughs> they used to watch these girls dress smart, getting better grades than they were. Sexual tension, that's mm. what's behind the whole Taliban movement. Yeah, they'll pay uh, when my beard grows. They'll pay one day, bitches. <laughs> so this is, you know, the, the the genesis of never mind all the politics and religion. That's a lot of tosh. That doesn't mean anything. Um, <clears throat> I had a, uh, a night at the park. The only other people staying there were some Unical oil men, Americans. I noticed they had their own little crew of locals as uh, uh, minders. They had some gas pipeline that... I mean, people did business with the Taliban uh, uh, run government. Uh, it was still a couple of years away from the Ministry for the Propagation of Virtue Against Vice. I think that's what it translated as. Um, and I needed to remember the next step. And it's always worth remembering when things don't go your way, dump everything behind you, get fresh stuff, fresh people. Yes. And where could I find them? There was a street called Scribe Street, or known as that, uh, behind the ruins of the old court building. People would sit there on kind of fold-up card tables and handle documents for people. Uh, they'd write letters for them, deal with official forms, um, type out stuff. Uh, there were four people there. One had a, a woman dressed like a ninja turtle in, in front of him, uh, and a, and a pile of papers and typing away at something. Another one had virtually nothing, um, but um, he uh, was sitting there eating something and looking around keen for business. Um, and another one was it looked like he was hanging on to the last vestiges of civilization in his 60 years. Uh, 
But the one I cho chose was none of those. He was the one who had a couple of paperback books. He was reading something. They had tags in them. He was dressed in uh, just a, a plain tunic, but, but clean, uh, youngish, looked a sort of thoughtful type. See, all the rest were either failures or had ambitions or were linked to people that I wouldn't want to know, like uh, broken officials or the remnants of the new lot or informers. This one showed some hope. And then he had the same name as I did, you know, but in localized Dowd. So uh, I said I needed a, a translator and um, whatnot, and I, I wanted some business I wanted to do. So he kind of uh, brightened up at that, and I asked him about his how he ran his little stall and chit-chat had made arrangements to uh, meet him the next day. But I noticed as soon as I left, uh, somebody, uh, the fat one, uh, went off to make trouble with somebody, <laughs> uh, find out who I was. But the, the one I liked quietly packed up and left, but only because he didn't like the others seeing that he met me. You know, the ridiculous, subtle dynamics of all of this. But I had what I wanted. I had somebody new who was outside of it. And um, I said that uh, I had this telephone number and it was, I'd come to buy antiquities, uh, the older the better. And I knew that they were being using uh, bulldozers to dig them up. So that was my cover story. Um, <clears throat> that I wanted things, uh, pre-Islamic art, uh, Gandaharan statues from the Greco-Indian uh, period. After Alexander left, he, some of his, uh, his command didn't last very long, but um, some of the, and the breakup of his empire, that uh, Greek influence stayed all right up to the borders of India. So there were some artworks to be had around there, and it seemed to me a, a good cover. Um, disreputable enough to be believable, <clears throat> not too financially rewarding to go insane, but still profitable for everybody and of no interest to anybody in the political world. So um, I then um, managed to get, uh, I, I got the, my translator to, to ring the number because I said I'd been given this as a contact with antiquities. Turned out his name was Mansour. He was, uh, my translator came back and said, oh yes, uh, he, he thinks he can get what you want from, from the museum. Um, you know, it's like a museum's a shop there, isn't it? <laughs> it's not like the museum has a shop. The museum is a shop. You buy, <laughs> buy what you want. Um, but this uh, little Dawood, the translator, seemed a bit sad about all this, you know, the um, Afghani treasures leaving the country. But he wasn't being critical of me. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> I, I uh, met um, Mansour the next day, very interesting guy. He'd been in some technical uh, department of the legitimate Afghan Air Force. And when the Taliban came in, there was about six aircraft that could actually do anything. Old Russian jets and whatnot were around. So they had to keep people that knew how to run the systems on. They couldn't be just um, idiots. So the, the, he still was actually on, on government wage. But looking around his house, I insisted on a home meeting because you can tell so much. You know, not, not just from the disposition of his family, but the mementos, the 
the things that he's had. Uh, man of wide-ranging things. And uh, I said to him, oh, by the way, I, uh, uh, I had a translator a while back. His name was Iftikhar, a Pakistani boy. I haven't been able to find him. He said to me, as though suddenly realizing, but not quite, that there might be more to this, uh, he said, you know, that's the second time this week I've heard that name. I thought, this is good. If he's as civilized as I take him for, this could turn out well. Uh, <clears throat> so, um, uh, I made my uh, arrangements for uh, a Bactrian coin, uh, an old stamp seal. These were the things I used to roll across clay tablets uh, and sort of left an image there. Um, and... Um, there was one other piece too. I think it was a, a little um, scene that was a carving. Gandahar, and so it had a mixture of uh, the, the Greek art in it. And uh, I said to myself, oh, by the way, um, I heard this Iftikhar's in trouble. Keep his family happy. How much for the boy? So I got the, the statue I was really interested in for 6000 and uh, got Iftikhar was offered for um, 4000 So the Gandaharan art was worth a lot more than him. Um, and apparently not, I'd, and it was just as well I'd changed course because, um, because he hadn't paid up and hadn't been very cooperative, <clears throat> they were going to send him to an attack on Mazar Sharif up north uh, just before Taliban had, uh, took their revenge on Hazara. Kind of like, you know how the Russians used to use uh, prisoners for clearing mines? Uh, he would have been first wave in that uh, and, and sort of gone. Now, this is, this, it gets even, now remember that Kabul is a wreck. There's, uh, the royal palace is a mess. It's just a skeletal frame. The, um, there's only a few hotels with enough generators to function. <clears throat> Very few foreigners around. Even the at least one thing, you know, DA couldn't possibly be on my case there. You know, they they, they were not going to do it. Um, I ended up uh, picking as the meeting place um, the only what would you say new build modern air-conditioned glass and steel place in the whole town. What was it? Some Italian company had a demented idea of setting up a fiber-optic network in uh, as a forerunner to uh, offering ex telephone exchanges to the new Taliban government because they were being accepted, you know, can't beat them, join them. That hadn't turned out well, but the building was there and the air-conditioning worked. And so I went in sitting around at like, control desks as a... Uh, uh, Mansour came in, and I had uh, in brown paper and string uh, my bits of artwork. And uh, little Iftikhar was then let oh. in, and he looked he looked a bit shameful, like he'd done something wrong, poor kid. But he had these bruises, and he walked with a kind of internal injury lilt to one side. And thought, yeah, you know, I would have liked to have a little word with the guys who brought him in. <laughs> Would love to, but you can't get carried away on emotional grounds. Um, I dismissed that. Oh, 
It's the car, you naughty boy. Where were you? No, I had you here last time. What have you been doing? Brawling in the street or something. Anyway, sit there. I've got things to do. So, and of course, there's big promises about what next I want to do and bring money and do things in here. So everybody is kind of placated for the moment. But I said to Dawood, uh, did you get that new place? I told him to rent a, another house uh, on the northern side of Kabul. All right. Um, and we just disappeared into all of that. I left Mansoor. I'm sure they tried to follow, but uh, Mansoor, the Air Force technical guy, they had something to settle with him, so that kept them busy. Argument over the money, no doubt. Um and the disposition of it. So then we got away. We got uh, a really crap old Japanese car, Subaru or something. And I thought, if the car wanted to go down where he was familiar, Baluchistan, cross over the border that way. <clears throat> no, it was just enough weather left to go up north. So uh, so we did. Uh, and went through Spinboldak, and there were some very strange uh, towns there roads that were really only roads on a map or nothing. Saw some Nuristanis. They were the pale-skinned, blue-eyed ones from up there. You know, the legend has it that they're, of course, Alexander's army had uh, <laughs> sired that lot. And they were pagan until as recently as 100 years ago when they had forced conversions. Anyway, I didn't believe all that. The Nazis did, of course. They sent a whole lot of people out that way looking to prove that the Aryan race had noble origins. Oh, <laughs> yeah, there's nothing worse than a parvenu nouveau-rich dictator and Hitler type than wanting to prove, you know, noble ancestry, is there? <laughs> People do that. Um, so, okay, I um, um, sent Iftikar back to Karachi. Uh, uh, Daoud went back uh, and he said, oh, well, do you, what about your antiquities? I said, uh, that new place you got, anybody know it? No. Okay, put them under the bed there. That's the best place for them. I wasn't going to travel around with that. Um, and I didn't go and see Lord John. I was a bit annoyed with him at the time for uh, letting it come to this. Rang up Eloise, said, no, um, yeah, it's <laughs> fine, you know. Because I just said oh, a friend had a little bit of a problem and didn't mention about shootouts and wild west border towns and Jalalabad. Uh, had to tell that story in mixed company, isn't it? <laughs> so everything's pretty good, but um, I'm still covering all the bases. I even had my friend Adnan take me to the airport at, um, at Lahore, um, which is a funny way of mixing the international and domestic flights together. Um, Oh, just dropped a bit of uh, padding. <laughs> the memory of what's about to happen next <laughs> is so strong, it's influencing the very structure of the studio, Sean. <laughs> yeah, yes. It's going to um, get dark, darker mm, than it's ever been. So there's nothing wrong with me, but I'm saying I've got the creeps. I said, I'd rather be in the wild west of Afghanistan with a gun that doesn't work than right here in uh, in Lahore. <sighs> Everything's fine. I don't see any bad faces out there. I said, you hang about. And I told him even to bring some official with him, somebody, somebody from immigration ministry or some government hack, because I've got my passport and there's nothing wrong with it. So I, I don't know what. 
but I'm nervous, you know. I, so it was Eloise. I wanted to get back in a hurry. I should have taken the long way. Anyway, I get into the airport. Everything's fine. I pick an idiot for the customs man. He's fine. Two other guys are over there looking at something under their desk. They're looking at a document, but quickly, like a document. Makes you think it's a picture, doesn't it? Yeah. You can't, they don't even put up pictures of fleeing dictators in that part of the world. They don't put up pictures of anybody else. Um, so they come over, want to see my passport. Um, still okay. It's genuine. Perfectly nothing wrong with it. Then the other one, the one saying to them, ah, to hell with it, let's go, uh, shift ends. And the other one, no, but look at it, look at it, it's got to be the same. And they showed me, what do you think? Now, there is one thing in this world, in some slightly out of control country, you do not want to see if you're in the hands of officials who can do you harm. You don't want to be shown a color, color, mind you, expensive, color photocopy or an A4 sheet of the very same picture that is in your passport oh. with bits of scotch tape all over it like it's been under there for a week and a half. Uh, yeah. Do I worry? No. My loyal friends are outside. Sure, they're Pakistani, but they don't mind a bit of trouble, a bit of rough and tumble. I managed to convince these guys to take me out to the, uh, uh, they held on to me a bit, to um, uh, the forecourt where we the people are giving farewell to the passengers to find my friends. And for sure something would have been sorted, you know, because one's already on my side. A resemblance, a similarity, he's saying, but it's absolutely the same picture. It's not even like another picture of me, it's the same Picture. Oh, yeah. Where are they? Where's Adnan? Bolted. Ministry of Information, whatever it was, immigration, shot through. First sign of trouble. And left there. Uh, what's this about? Who is it? Oh, some people want to see you. I'm bundled off somewhere. I've got no chance of getting out. I'm starting to spiral here in Spiral Studios and there too because this is out of hand it doesn't make any sense uh, i'm sent down to it this uh, again it's a sunday i'm sent down to a deserted office in town put in a cell uh, some police from karachi want to see me um uh, i try to even get out of this dirty mud hut cell thing while these police from karachi are coming there's some poor kid in there i said uh, what's it like the police here oh police here they torture, like he was saying, the sun rises in the morning. But if you pay them money, uh, yeah, you pay them money, a little torture. Great. Should we go over to the questions now, David? I think this is the climax to end this one on. Yes, that's true. Because uh, who I see next, really would have to give some background to, so we should do that. Okay, yeah. let's do that then. Okay. So you've got a lot of questions here from your followers that have printed out. But the first question is from me. It's one of the hottest subjects in news and on YouTube right now. Okay. And it's there's new developments every couple of days with this Jeffrey Epstein character. 
he's facing a life sentence. He got a pass when he was arrested for these things. I think it was 10 years ago. Mm. They said basically to him, we'll just give you a charge for soliciting prostitution and you can have to do a year in jail and you know most of that will be work release. After he had groomed all these young uh, underage girls to do all this uh, elite paedophile stuff. Oh, it wasn't, was, wasn't one of the princes from here, one of his friends as well. Prince Andrew, even mm. after he was convicted and got released against the wishes of the rest of the royal family, Prince Andrew went and spent days with Jeffrey Epstein. Mm. Uh, apparently, they've got a very strong friendship and relationship. I wonder how it's holding. <laughs> well, now he's been re-indicted. I think it's a different state, so it's not double jeopardy. The victims were outraged because when they were told years ago that he was now only getting done for soliciting prostitution, what did that make them? Yeah, yeah. co-conspirators in a way. And prostitutes. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah mm, so, mm. you know, they, these were underage girls who were groomed by this malicious paedophile. I who, did see a photograph of him about, uh, from, I think, 20 years ago, some parody, and he was with... Uh, well, we'll clean it up by saying a girlfriend, a date for the night. Yeah. She did seem about 14 or so. Yeah. Um, I mean, <laughs> let's try and defend the indefensible. <laughs> there were very young girls, uh, underage girls. Um, I don't think we can put them in the same category as somebody who's downloading, you know, pre-teens from Manila or something like that. But... In serious bother. He had Clinton, um, Bill Clinton took numerous flights and Clinton's come out and made a statement. It's obvious from his statement there's some guilt resonating here for him to come out and make this statement. The stained dress of Bill Clinton. (laughs) (laughs) Epstein facing life in prison and he said he's going to name up to five names. So do you think they will whack him? Because he already got found didn't whether it was a suicide attempt or beaten up he already got found on the floor in a mess with injuries do you think that was a warning perhaps to him in the prison system um it, were they holding him any idea or, or somewhere on protection this, i guess is this a new york case or was it a new york case that <clears> he got um well i mean he'd have to be on some level of protection i presume that yeah. wouldn't necessarily as you know there's yeah. no guarantee of anything you only have to go down to uh uh, the medical center or en route to somewhere else uh, and then you can have a chance encounter in the corridor which doesn't Fall turn out well. Yeah. Dangerous places stairs in prison. Um, Do you think if he's got the goods on such powerful uh, people he's going to last long? Was the statement that he's going to speak on five well-known people, was that attributed to him or he, as far as you know he actually said it I saw it as a media headline and the media, another media headline is that he has recordings of these sexual situations with the underage girls with powerful people he has recordings of them well it does kind of make you wonder um, how it's got to this stage if he has that you'd think if enough powerful people had <clears throat> dirt that they wanted kept secret um they would have done everything within their power to uh, protect him. Do you think it's to do with the change in the guard in politics in America then? Because it, I think it was... Um, you mean because of the Trump era? Yeah, was it Obama's federal prosecutors that gave him a pass? Well, the, 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 the prosecutor that gave him a pass is presently on, Tom, on Trump's team. Um, mm, mm. I think he was the Labour Secretary or something, and he's just lost his job over this. 
for giving him the pass. Yeah, oh, it, it, um, everything comes back to haunt people in this. Um, I mean, the if, if you look at the history of these things, I mean, even going back to uh, Bill Wyman or Roman Polanski, um, they um, things that people could get away with used to sometimes come out and then they do more or less harm. I mean, in Polanski's case, the, the girl involved said she regrets ever bringing it up. Um, but um, now uh, it's so easy for um, prosecutions to go ahead and somebody uh, to keep promoting it. They're, they're just not so easy to kill off. People can say if... If you're rich, but just as importantly in the US, uh, have uh, the goods on somebody or, or some power over others, um, cases can be buried. But if they're very public like this one, it would be a battle to find somebody in any government office who would willingly uh, let it go. Because, as you say, look what happens to people who intercede on his behalf. Um, I think he um, underestimated uh, his power. I think he had a, a, an arrogance that his uh, position and his friendships would utterly protect him. So he didn't take steps to um, bury the output of information or, or whatever uh, was needed or, or pay off the right girls or, or whatever. Um, he, and, and now he, he doesn't look so well anymore, does he? It looks quite, I mean, he was not a young guy, but he, he looks quite haggard. Um, I think um, in, in some ways um, um, he doesn't seem like if we had lunch with him, he'd probably be entertaining enough to talk to, but I think he'd be certainly very arrogant. Uh, and um, I don't know, I can't get uh, too worked out over um, um people dating underage girls when the, the historically people, I mean, who was that musician who married a 13-year-old quite legally? Well, Pablo uh, Escobar, his wife was 13 when he met her. Yes, when he, when he met her. Um, he was, um, I think, 11 years older. Um, oh, I almost said. <laughs> um, but um, it, it is a kind of... Um, slightly prim world we're in when it comes to things. So that um, people live such public lives uh, that and, and vulnerable teenagers who haven't got enough experience of life don't realize um, they're going into a trap. Uh, they think it's all wonderful being with these rich and famous guys, uh, but um, they won't be able to deal with uh, um, the position that quite unfairly, prosecutors and others supposedly doing good uh, push them into. I mean, um, if if people as a teenager have done something they later regret, they'd much prefer it never came out than have to stand up in an open court and go through nights and details and who touched who where and all of that. But um, I don't think um, uh, before we... Uh, started a recording, we were talking about Kevin Spacey. He's, um, what was it, it groped a couple of boys or something. Um, he still hasn't been forgiven for that, even though the case is withdrawn against him. 
um, this is, uh, and currently, and it's likely to stay so for a while, um, becomes one of the unforgivable um, uh, crimes or social interaction that, and of course, he, being arrogant and rich, he kind of made himself a target. I don't think, <clears throat> I don't think he's going to get any smarter. I think things would just get worse for him. Yeah. I think if he was going to uh, make any move to save himself from the worst of it, he would have figured it out by now. But uh, it, I think it's snowballed out of his control. So he's in under his head. He's going to drown in the system. And it is sad that the victims. Um, Oh, get, they just get, get trampled re, on get the wayside. Re-victimized and trampled on. And it's brave of the ones to speak out against such powerful people. All right, next question is from Amelia Boo Ferris. Hi, David. Have read both your books, thought they were brilliant. Good to hear that rather than incomprehensible. Mm. Links. <laughs> Links to David's books in the description box. Mm. Do you have any more books in the pipeline? Um, um Amelia, I do. Um, I've got, um, I had an idea of uh, writing something about some Russians that we'll meet later on in these interviews. Uh, it was a Moscow street gang that hijacked a plane and ended up in Pakistan. Uh, their downfall and little history I thought would make quite a good book. But I really, I think I'm kind of done with um, autobiography. But what can I write where I can't use the real names, but some very interesting stuff has happened? I can write crime fiction, which I intend to do, about somebody I met who was, um, he lived in Canada and he used to cross over the border. He was a, a fixer for Crook's other problems, a bit like a, well, Winston Wolfe in Pulp Fiction was a comic book character and and a good one, but nonetheless not very real. But this guy used to actually handle some very strange things, including um, some guys who were stuck in a, a vault in Marseille. Um, and as long as I call it fiction, uh, I can uh, I, I can tell those stories. That was the way. Get upset. That's how Howard Marks. Um, that's what he did, didn't he? Towards the end of his life, he crossed over to fiction. And did he? And he oh, said, I've got all these stories. I don't want to get people in trouble, so I'll fictionalize. He was a slow learner in that case. He certainly didn't mind ratting a few people out <laughs> early in the career. Mm. Okay, so Matt Wan has asked, David, I'm curious where you stand in regards to the guilt aspect of trafficking drugs. Do you lean more towards the side which says that, yes, you are ruining people's lives by moving drugs into Australia? Or do you lean towards the side that says it makes no difference? Besides, there's 10 other dealers to replace you and you're not forcing anyone to take drugs. You are simply providing a product which the junkies wanted. Mm. Is this Matt? Was it? Matt one. Ah, uh, I wonder whether there's a two. I think I answered his uh, Yeah, you question. did answer a lot of these online, um, but, but people uh, don't see No, that. no, I understand that. Uh, as I said to Matt... Um, the fact that other people are doing it is no excuse. We all have to be accountable for what we do, even if we take a while to realize that. But um, I, I and my friends started out from the position that everything should be legalized, even A-class. Agree entirely. That um, 
if drugs cause problems, um, and which they do, um, some drugs are just hard to resist, like crack cocaine. Others cause withdrawals if you stop using them, like opiates. But this is something that, as in all things in human life, um, people need to understand how they can control these things within their life. The problem is, by outlawing it, it made... Um, it dictated that the price be black market prices and therefore high because the risks became high. Now, still no excuse for me being in it, but I um, so strongly held that belief that if you want to change the law, you break the law. Um, and it was something I knew about um, firsthand. And people say um, these drugs ruin my life. Lots of things can ruin a person's life. Um, alcohol can ruin somebody's life. Uh, but uh, certainly unregulated drugs can uh, be dangerous. Um, in my defense, I'd always said back then um, that Mine was kitchen clean and uh, the weights were accurate. <laughs> um, but looking back on it from another point of view, which you only get in a kind of advanced stage, I guess, is that we've only got a limited time on Earth and I probably could have done something better with my time than that. So drug laws created the drug problem. Politicians made drugs illegal. Completely worthless plants became more valuable than gold. And that's been the biggest profit opportunity in the history of the world for criminal organizations to flood the entire world with drugs. Mm. And the politicians know that, but they've, they're they've, too cowardly they've, they've figured out to, uh, ways, ways to profit from it. Uh, yeah, in, in, a, in a petty bureaucratic way, but uh, they do it. I think the legal system's one of the biggest employers in America now. Oh, and the prison industry, yes. Keep yeah. building them. Mm. This guy's got a colorful name, but Sexting One. I wonder what he does in his other uh, visits to uh, YouTube outlets. Okay, butt sexing, I like your name anyway. David, have mm. you ever read Uncle Fester's Secrets of Methamphetamine Manufacture? And if so, what did you think of it? Edition 8.5 is out now. Also, bloody Brazilian knife fighting techniques. Looks like an interesting read, LOL. Yeah. Um... Well, I feel like I know you. I'll just call you Butt. Um, no, really, Butt. Uh, there were a lot of manuals out in the, the 70s when I grew up about how to uh, start off your own laboratory and uh, make things, even one how to build an atomic bomb. The, the um, Anarchist Cookbook, is that one? Yeah, that was a famous yeah. one, wasn't it? Um, but it had very poor drawings in it and, and um, missed out a couple of important points. The one that... Uh, uh, referred to there, uh, edition 18 or, or 8, um, is actually better than most. Um, but um, it doesn't really solve the problem. Um, where the hell do you get the precursors? Uh, P2P doesn't, uh, you can't get it at your local um, uh, hardware shop. Um, B&Q doesn't carry it as far as I know. Um, <laughs> and without those precursors, uh, never really even going to get started. Um, so, and, and the the cost of buying eight million packets of um, 
cold and flu remedy to scratch out the ephedrine and sort of work your way backward, it really wouldn't be worth it. But he sounds like a man of wide reading <laughs> uh, habits. Uh, Perhaps it's handy for the Mexican cartel. So Kingpin341, a man who's perhaps, or female who's perhaps names themselves in honor of your um, series. Hmm. David, over the 40 plus years, how many of your clients or even other competitors have slipped through the net of the authorities and made enough money to retire and never work again or started up legal businesses? Um most of my close friends ended up dead from one reason or another. Not necessarily the business, but they um, uh, went through, what could you call it, kind of natural causes or health problems or car accidents. But certainly um, a couple of them uh, worn down by the legal system. Some of my Danish friends, <clears throat> um, I mean, it sounds so civilized, Scandinavia, but if you're arrested there... Uh, until your trial is completed, you're held in isolation and you don't get to mix with any other prisoners. They've got exercise yards just for those remand prisoners. And they, um, it looks like segments of an orange. You go in one at a time uh, and never see anybody else. Uh, one close friend there was 22 months on isolation waiting for his trial. It just wore him out and bad medical attention in prisons. He, died of some liver failure. But uh, no, really, out of my group, I'm the last one left standing. Gab, Rado, David, in Thailand, don't they sit you down and you have your hands tied and they place a Thai orchid <clears throat> between your hands and machine gun you from behind? Uh, not from behind, but some of those details are right. The, the old practice uh, was to be um, tied to a leaning board, um, tilting backwards, uh, and the machine gun is uh, welded to a, a bench top about eight feet away. Um, the flowers, yes, uh, it depends how far back you want to go, but the, the, uh, the flowers were meant to be some kind of... Um, vaguely Buddhist offering, um, make peace with your maker, but they don't believe in a maker exactly. It just does an eternal cycle. Um, but they don't do that anymore. They use lethal injection, Thailand. Oh, they use lethal yes, injection Yes, they switched over that uh, in the last five or six years. So um, Always copying still the some dispute over getting the bodies back. But uh, Gabe, no. the Yid... Hi, David. Mm. You mentioned the rise of the Albanian gangs in London, UK and Europe. Have you had any dealings with them? And if so, or not even, what is it, in your opinion, that has made them so effective in monopolizing the UK underworld in such a relatively short space of time? Um, well, so it's really, why have they been successful? Yeah, is it because is it they'll just go all the way? They'll kill your entire family? <laughs> Well, uh, they, they might be determined in that way, but um, generally not. They're just hard workers. Um, <clears throat> they're willing to work nights, um, and they have uh, their their real uh, asset in their sense is that they have uh, an uninterrupted supply. It's very strange stuff, I should say. It's um, 
mostly manufactured in Albania. Uh, there's a little cocaine in there, but not much. It's almost entirely variations of ephedrine and uh, low-level speed. Not so much speed that you say, well, this is clearly speed. But, um, and and something, some other kind of um, slightly trippy toxin that's in there. I think the one that's used for um, worming tablets. It's um, done in a bulk way. So they've always got it. They're on the job. Um, people often assume that ruthlessness is a, is a, is a, a way to success in, in narcotics business, but it isn't. Uh, th those kids who ran out and thought, I think I'll go into the drug business. I'll get um, a butcher's ap apron and a, a chainsaw. Uh, oh, some safety goggles. I think that's the way to start. Uh, not destined to do too well. <laughs> He's also asked, why are the prices of narcotics so high in Australia? Uh, distance and the uh, difficulty of importing. The uh, <clears throat> the air network um, uh, makes it very hard to get through uh, airports, though, and the sea network works better uh, uh, from their point of view, but um, is expensive to set up. So the it's I think to tradition, and they started high and they stayed that way. Um, certainly cocaine is probably 10 times the, the cost here. If somebody, um, one of the, the earlier questioners asked me if, if somebody had survived being in this business. I did know some uh, Italian weed growers who um, did one huge crop and then got out of it altogether, bought a restaurant and never looked back. But that's rare that you can say to yourself, Okay, I did well on this one, and I'm not going to do it again. So much temptation to say, "Well, it worked the first time," um, uh, but uh, this uh, because this back at a tradition in Australia of the high prices, it kind of stayed that way. It's the final question from him: Is what are your thoughts on the fentanyl epidemic in the U.S.? Can you see it spreading to the U.K.? I can't, uh, and uh, UK drug-taking habits seem to be pretty established. Um, people, it goes in kind of waves. I mean, um, speed used to be big here, wasn't it, really once? Um, but also because uh, Pakistani brown is plentiful and cheap, um, fentanyl is difficult to work with. Um, it's very toxic in in anything but microscopic levels. Curiously, it'll, it'll be the drug of choice that um, you'll get if you have an operation in hospital here. Mm. Um, but there it is, it's measured out. So I, I don't think so. Also, we have to bear in mind that America is big enough where uh, fringe things can become quite big as a business, and it's happened in that case. I was surprised that the crystal meth epidemic from Arizona that I saw didn't translate over here because a lot of people quit the coke because the meth, you can just do one line and keep going, but the coke, you got to keep buying and keep buying and keep buying. So they just moved over to the meth and the coke. Oh. Has David any stories about Chopper? This is from I Am So Thursday Gaming. 
All right. Oh, Chopper Reed. Oh, I always had a, a sense of humor, even when he was in the Supermax there. Um, he had, uh, you know, he, and also um, he could take being stabbed without any real effect. Did you see that? Yeah. Uh, he, uh, I, I always thought Eric Banner played him terribly well. And, and you know, it was Chopper's uh, choice to have Eric Banana play him. Um, and he, uh, there, because there were kind of some similarities. He's dead now, isn't he, Chopper? Died a couple of years ago. Didn't he get cancer? Yeah, I, and he, he moved back to some family place in Tasmania or something. Did you have any interactions with him? Um, only in, in the Supermax. And, um, yeah, yeah, we told a couple of jokes to each other, but uh, he wasn't really in in the drug business in any serious way. He would just go where the money was. If he could, you know, threaten or, or steal some money from somebody, he'd do it. Um, he didn't have the uh, stomach or the patience for doing it in any real way. So this has come from... To Balkane. Oh, I see him from time to time. Hi there, TBK. Yes, he's uh, um, quite a reader, by the way. Were you using heroin in Klong Pram? I understood you got clean before that, but judging from Thai prison memoirs, everyone who can afford dope uses it, if only to numb the emotional pain and help pass the time. Well, no. Um, I wanted to get out of there. I didn't want to numb anything and needed... Uh, uh, what faculties I had concentrated on that. So um, I hadn't been near it for 10 years, and it was certainly, it, it seemed to me that anything that would have been a distraction um, would have been, uh, I, I was just uh, too angry and, and determined to move ahead. My chances were slim enough without taking the edge off anything I might be able to do. Here's the next question. Did all those years in third world dungeons have a detrimental effect on your physical and mental health? There are all kinds of tropical diseases. There's TB, viruses, food poisoning, um, and PTSD. Well, um, those are two different things. Physically, it's interesting. I, I, I went for a, <clears throat> a checkup quite a few years ago, and um, the clinician there said, hmm, Odd thing, you've got antibodies for everything. Um, all the, the diseases that you're likely to get, even a few rare ones, I'd already picked up antibodies to. And I, and I noticed I could drink um, tap water in Thailand or Pakistan and, and I wouldn't get an upset stomach. Um, it hasn't really had... Uh, um, I'm getting more run down now from uh, working regular jobs than and I ever did back in that business. And also even uh, my own drug use was uh, pretty regulated, so it didn't have any effect like that. As for the mental side of things, uh, probably. Um, it goes on, but if the content and quality of my dreams is anything to go by, um, I mean, there is never a night without um, some fictional um, fantasy world jail that has to be overcome in the dream. 
I imagine there's a few ghosts in there as well. Mm. Buster Edwards, David, did you ever encounter Warren Fellows, fellow Australian in the business of heroin importation? Thought to ask you during a previous podcast when you mentioned Neddie Smith as they worked together. Um, Warren um, was an early arrestee, if I can say that, in um, in Thailand. And no, went on. It was uh, they were in Malaysia, wasn't it? Warren Fellows, yeah. And um, with a, uh, he was facing death. Yeah, there, there was um, uh, Warren Fellows ended up doing, it was his book uh, Damage Done, wasn't it? Oh, that was Thailand. It? Yeah, that was Thailand. Um, I was thinking of uh, Barlow and Chambers, who actually got executed in, in Malaysia. Uh, that was when Bob Hawke was uh, Prime Minister and, uh, oh, he called them barbaric and all of that, but he didn't really mean it. He, he certainly didn't have the uh, Foreign Affairs Department intervene in any serious way. Um, governments can stop other governments from executing their citizens if they want. The French did with some girl there in Malaysia. Uh, they about to execute her and the French said, no, we're serious, don't do it. Oh, didn't know you were. It was just the usual publicity blast say they would expect, so they just let it go, and nothing to them. Um, and uh, Warren Fellows, um, no, no, he, he, I knew quite a bit of, about it because the, um, uh, the mess he left behind sort of reached me indirectly um, because I think his girlfriend knew some girl I knew and wanted some advice and, she must have got the right kind because she ran off with the, the Porsche and the, took the money and dumped him. Um, so I wonder whether that was her own idea or probably what her girlfriend's told her. But he, I think he knew that was going to happen. Um, guys have uh, strange attitudes to uh, what they think is going to go on outside when they, when they get inside. I, I, and you're a very level-headed guy in prison years ago who um, his girl used to come and see him every week. And he was getting out in about two weeks later. I said, your girl not coming? He said, no, no, she, she'd be uh, getting rid of the boyfriend this weekend. What do you mean? Oh, she can't live without it. She doesn't tell me about it. I don't know anything about it. But, you know, she's my girl and it'll always be that way. She just has to get rid of him before I turn up. Uh, so he could live with the idea that you know this would be the bust up weekend, so he'd be thrown out. Uh, he would have got a surprise if he'd hung around. That's for sure. Uh, Buster Edwards. Oh, I'm sorry. Whoop whoop. Can you ask David what was the most scared he ever got in Thai jail, apart from the night of his escape? Hmm. Um. It, it wasn't. Thai prisons are not terribly scary in as much as um, they can be dangerous in an offhand way. You can get involved in something where that childlike anger um, comes across to you and uh, you can be harmed. But the, the, your biggest danger in a Thai prison is from your fellow foreigners or crossing the Nigerian gangs in some way. So that wasn't... Um, uh, really, uh, no, there, there, there wasn't anything. You know, the, the, the kinds of things that were scary were running out of time. Uh, I think if I heard something 
if I heard that uh, another DEA were trying to bring my case to a, a close, uh, that kind of news was scary. But nothing, nothing within the jail itself. Court news can be terrible. Mm. Okay, um, Victor Ruela. David is a treasure of true stories. Great podcast. How old was David when he was first arrested? Very first arrest. Um, let's see now. Uh, nine. I'd broken into the Bryant and May. Nothing came of it. Bryant and May matchbox factory. I used to collect matchbox labels. Back in the 60s, uh, they came in um, sets of 64, which the company would issue every year. So I collected them, walked the streets, found them in gutters, got on my skateboard and ran around and... and and I became obsessed with them. So, weirdly enough, it was from a seven-year-old. I bought the plans to the match factory. Yeah, from a seven-year-old. This was his name was Brian Carlson. He was the weirdest kid I've ever come across. <laughs> Teachers were freaked by him. He was the only kid that used to sit down with two little girlfriends and these two little <laughs> seven-year-old cuties either side of him, and teachers would go, Carlson. Oh, no, I don't want to talk to you. And uh, because I, I knew him because he bought my, I, I cracked it, the inside of a bottle cap to some fizz drink, had a winning bicycle on it or something. And next minute I've got Brian Carlson on my case. Now I want to buy that from you. <laughs> Why? I just want it. Yeah, but it's more use to me. And he treasured it off. And you know what I got suckered into? He gave me the missing man from Uncle card. They came in a set of 61. You could never get 61. And two sets of monkeys cards. But uh, when he heard I was interested in Matchbox label, he sold me to the plans. And they were elaborate. Take a train to here, climb this, <laughs> go up there, down the light well, through the shower system. And I got into the place on a Sunday, and it was like I died and gone to heaven. Big skips full of Matchboxes. Security guard got me. I was taken in by the police. <laughs> so I'll wreck that up as an arrest. Wow. Mm. That'll make a great clip. Arrested at nine years old. Didn't talk, though. <laughs> <laughs> Leave no, the fifth. Uh, Get me a lawyer. So this guy, Joe, sent me an email that I received. It must have been last night. I believe he saw you on Tom London Jewel Thief's Oh, live I chat. came in late. Live chat uh, into on the, the premiere, yeah. yeah. yeah so he, he sent this email, and all of the podcasts now are on premiere, usually on Monday night at 6 p.m., and there's a live chat next to the podcast, and if anyone wants to join in the live chat, sometimes the guests join in as well. So this is from Joe. I have the following question for David. You mentioned a lot of people travel each day on false documents, falsified. Does he think that mm. as technology progresses, it is becoming an impossible feat and how hard it is today compared to when he did it? Several countries, even India now, use biometric tech like fingerprint scanners at the airport. When biometric passports came in, it took the Malaysians about two weeks to um, be able to copy the chip. Um, so... Um, <clears throat> I like the foolproof idea. It means your bogus stuff is going to be accepted much more readily. Um, of course, I presumably, um, it depends on the start point. Once they've got everybody, then it gets very difficult because you can't, it's like in the US, they've got a social security number, which you get from birth almost, don't you? I've got one of them, uh, US oh, yeah. one. 
Hmm. Well, those numbers, though they're not strictly sequential, um, it's very hard to backdate one uh, to to match it in. So when um, death certificates uh, are now matched with birth certificates, so uh, you can't go some other identity. But that's not to say that you can't um, be somebody else. That'll, that'll go on for quite a while. You said, I'm also interested in what he thinks about how progress and technology impact the power balance between regulation and human ingenuity to circumvent it. Does tech allow us to build taller walls faster than it allows us to build taller ladders to climb over them? Well, that's a good way to put it, isn't it? Um, I, I think it, it depends on how much the, the state, how much Big Brother wants to uh, control um, our lives. Um, I think a, a lot of a younger generation accepts that, that this, there's no secrets in their life. So they have to be a bit fringe anyway to, to get into trouble. Um, but once somebody is already of age and has electronic footprint everywhere, um, they should be very thoughtful about uh, disappearing for that. And also it, 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 it pays to plan ahead to look at the things that might become um, the, the de facto ID card of a country. In Australia, they don't have ID cards, but um, I was an early adopter of the only national database they had, which was the Medicare or Medicaid, uh, I think it was called Medicare, the National Health uh, Service base. That was the only thing they, where they really had everybody on it. So when they were talking about upgrading systems, um, while there was still time, I ran out and got a hundred or something when it was just like over the counter at a post office. So in this country, that'll be the thing to look for because though I don't know, where do you think they'll start? Not everybody has a tax file number. Um, but look at what Experian and the other agencies, if, if you don't have... Um, no matter that you have never ended up owing anybody money, if you don't have Facebook, uh, it's almost like you're a nobody. You, you know, it's all right if you're over 70 and you're not part of that generation, but it'll soon come to be that you're, you're a non-person if you're not in social media. If you have any more questions for David, please put them in the comments box below this video. And when we go over to part six, we will put some of those questions forward to him. David has been very generous again today. Agreed to come in and do a, a two-hour podcast that has extended now to three hours. So David, always been so uh, generous with his time coming over here and, and spending all this time and answering your questions. So please let's show our love and support back for David by buying his books. You know, it's, a, it's only less than a tenner on Kindle. Available worldwide, links are in the description box. We set out to get David a thousand YouTube subscribers by the end of the year. I think he's at over 2,000 now. So please click over and subscribe to David's channel. David does post his own videos. Yeah, not uh, many, but uh, if, if I get another 500, I'll, I'll get off my bum and do a few for you. <laughs> and we didn't have time for my recollections on sex and prison, but we'll save that for uh, 
some of those. Unless <laughs> you want to just chop it in. Please, uh, All right, then. Leave, leave your thoughts in the comment section. And support Please like Sean and subscribe too. to my channel as well. We're over mm. 200,000 subs. Appreciate that, everybody. Okay. Thanks again, Robert. Okay. Yeah. Yep.